Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Dead City, the motherfuckers from Los Angeles who tore the world apart. I mean, if you haven't seen that video or you didn't listen to Rule of Three, Episode 2, which came out last week, go back and check this out. Dead City Mess Psychosis. We're going to have a link in the com show episode link. Check this fucking band out. Absolutely changing the face of hardcore and punk rock. And the scenes from their shows in recent months destroys anything I've ever seen in declination of Western civilization. And just big shout out to those guys for instilling faith back into so many of us who thought the kind of punk spirit that we all believed existed truly is still in the fucking air. Thank you, Dead City punks. So, we're trying out some new audio stuff. I've had major problems with my computer. So, this is the first episode I'm doing with Reaper. And also, this is the first episode that I've used Squadcast. And the only downside to Squadcast is, unless the person has a PC, I'll have to still figure out a different recording. But I believe that this recording is much clearer than previous episodes. And with the little bit of support we've gotten from Patreon so far, I've been trying to include bringing up the quality of audio overall for your listening pleasure. So thank you for the support. You can go to patreon.com slash this is hardcore to support. Also, for those who had asked, the rule of three will have its own feed. I'm going to have links on the TIHC podcast and on social media. Be sure to check out the brand new Broad Street Breakdown episode. It came out yesterday. Also check out the Post America podcast with Maxi Mike. For those who are still unsure about this LA Hardcore shows that we were just talking about featuring Dead City, Maxi Mike does a great job of an on-the-ground, in-person replay of the events. And the interview was absolutely spectacular. Big shout-outs to all of LA Hardcore for kicking some ass and to New York Hardcore for taking a hit for all of us. As we start announcing new shows, I wanted to put the fact that we have a show in Pennsylvania. In fact, a couple shows in Pennsylvania coming up. First, Sunday, June 27th, Madball, Death Before Dishonor, Cruel Hands, Hangman, most important, MH Chaos, first East Coast show. Also, our buddies in Hesitate. This will be at Club Reverb in Reading, Pennsylvania. Tickets are on sale. We'll have links and flyers. Also, we got some shows coming up. PA Hardcore is not stopping. Bob Wilson has a big picnic. 20-something bands. Sellersville VFW. You know, whether you were at the Hoods of the Woods show back in the day or seeing Nails back there. Bob's got a great fucking show coming up July 10th there. And we'll have stuff for that coming out soon. So, Hardcore's back. Thank you for all of the bands that played, took some heat on the internet, and said fuck it and went forward. The shit is coming back. When we talk about guests who have started at the very beginning, Mike Gitter is someone who is a self-avowed second-generation hardcore punk, but more importantly, what he did with XXX Fanzine was document such a formative part of hardcore. From 1983 to 1987. And, you know, had he just stopped at 
his fanzine and writing for Thrasher, he would still be on this show. But as you hear, he goes so much deeper. In fact, such a big part of hardcore and music landscape from the 90s onward. In fact, this episode only goes to 1997. Mike Gitter shifts his entire career, not just in booking shows and being a part of music with his own bands, but becoming an A&R at some amazing record labels, which basically changed the face of music, hardcore, metal, as we know it. He's a great example of the DIY ethos, that kind of spirit that is driven in our culture that keeps people obsessed for well over 35, 40 years almost at this point. And he's still kicking ass for all of us. I can't wait for you to hear this interview. We're going to have a part two with Mike because his career is so long that we just could have truncated it all into three hours. So let's fucking go. We are talking to Mike Gitter. Once again, as you listen to these different guests that come on, the theme of starting at the bottom and working your all the way up has been constant, but I don't know if we've ever had someone who started in 1983 with a small fanzine and would end up signing and being part of so many great American metal and hardcore records and is landed himself at a major point in music where one of his bands that he had a huge hand in just won the goddamn Grammys. It's insane. And... You know, we're going to hear a lot of stories about his rise into the corporate music world. But remember, you're talking to a dyed-in-the-paint OG original punk rock hardcore motherfucker. Mike, thank you for coming on the show, man. So I think that makes me a OG dyed-in-the-wool Grammy-winning Zelig-esque hardcore punk rock record. Thank you for having me. No, it's so cool because, like, uh, just seeing uh, the video behind you with like the negative approach, but you got the gold records. Like, your wall is a combination of everything that you've come into, and and that's a huge part of what makes you so interesting. Because I know, you know, from the earliest points of punk rock, there was magazines, and throughout the '90s, I felt like every third person in hardcore was required to have a one, at least a one issue fanzine but I don't know anyone who could take the contacts and experience and eventually walk themselves into a multiple different spots as an A&R position. But before we get into all that, let's start at the beginning. What was it like where you grew up? What was the music you were first growing up around? And let's start there. So I'm from a town called Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is about 35 minutes north of Boston. It's the next town up on the coast from Salem, Massachusetts. So growing up there, I would say in the, you know, the, the late 70s, you know, 1980, 81, 82, you know, we, we were sort of subject to both, you know, the, the, usual, the usual stuff that everybody was fed at that point, you know, on the radio, be it sticks, Ario Speedwagon, um, you know, Journey, things that things that you sort of like discount once once you get into punk rock, but then you kind of come back on and you realize like, okay, I, I like a lot of these records. Um, but growing up in the Boston area, you know, I was I was I was sort of I was I I sort of won, I guess what's called, I think it's the outlier 
outlier theory or something like that. They're, I'm, I'm, I'm mistaking the term, but basically, you know, right place, right time, um, right convergence of events. And, you know, in Boston, not only because of the, the you know, amount of colleges we have there, we had like this, this insane amount of college radio, but we also had, we also had great commercial radio. So, you know, and some of those commercial stations focused more on this sort of emerging new wave, which were, which were things like, you know, the clashes they were commercially cresting, um, you know, Jim Carroll's people who died, you know, the jam, like, you know, by the time they got to, by the time they got to songs like, you know, a town called malice, um, the Ramones, you know, these were not uncommon things to hear on, on, on commercial radio in the Boston area at that point. Now, I was, we were, I was also lucky enough. We were also lucky enough to um, have store, you know, to have good record stores or have good stores in general. One of the places that, um, you know, where I, I first started getting, you know, a handle on some of the stuff was Newberry Comics. Because I would go, you know, I was I was always a, a comics head from from you know a very 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 young age, and I would go into Boston with my you know with my dad when 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 you know he had he had some sales calls in the Boston area or you know with my folks on the weekend. And I would go to Newberry Comics when they just sold comics, but what I started noticing were there were these records that started appearing on the counters there that were, you know, largely black and white, very sort of almost, almost aggressively um, designed, you know, be it fonts, be it imagery. Um, it's, it started piquing my interest at the same time you would start to see, be it, be it at the local supermarket or, you know, at some of these, records at some of these um, record stores, you would start to see magazines, be it, you know, Trouser Press or Cream, um, which I would always, you know, if, if I was if I was going to stop and shop with my mom, I'd be, you know, checking out that new issue of Trouser Press going like, oh, cool, there's, there's the cars on, you know, there's the cars on the cover, but what's this Devo thing, this residence thing, this Dead Kennedys thing? Okay, I got I got to find out more about that, um, you know. And in a very short amount of time, all of this kind of coalesced and into really piquing my interest, and and stumbling upon a local a local um, college radio station WMWM in Salem, Mass, where you know, all of a sudden, here's that Devo record, here's that Dead Kennedys record. Here's um, Black Flag's Jealous Again. And all of a sudden, this is, this is music that is, you know, not just, not just speaking to me, but really wrapping itself around, you know, really wrapping itself around my cortex in a way that, like, you know, my mom's Helen A-Track, Hel Hel God bless her, um, my mom's Helen Reddy A-Tracks just kind of didn't. Or even, like, even things like, you know, the Beatles or Aerosmith, um, you know, Black Sabbath probably had a little bit more, more of a pull. Alice Cooper definitely had more of a pull. The Who was a very important band for me because they, they almost, 
shared that um, that same sort of, you know, get up, you know, get up and 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 and, and shout for your community sensibility that you know you, ultimately you found in punk. Um, so all this kind of coalesced, I, and I started hearing this music that like felt like it just it had more gravity for me. Uh, it just it 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 meant more, and then. You know, I, I start hearing things, I, I start bumping into records like This is Boston, not LA. Um, and all of a sudden you're you're hearing, you know, the, those first six gangrene tracks and they're blazingly fast on like anything you've ever heard. Or, you know, the proletariat. And that was just angry, political, like there was, there was just sort of like a an awareness about what you know what rick the singer was 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 spouting and shouting which basically you know I, you know I, I i hadn't i hadn't yet bumped into like gang of four or the fall yet so i wouldn't recognize reference points but it was still speaking to me and then um i you know then i then i heard the first ssd control record and that was a lightning rod for me that was a, that was an absolute world changer for me on so many levels one those were guys who came from two towns away from where, where I grew up. And what they, what they showed to me at the time was, you know, all the music, despite all the music, despite all the imagery, despite all the, all the ideas and ideals that were floating around, the, the, the main essence of, you know, what they conveyed and it, it, it's, it's right. It's, it's, it's from the first note of, of um, boiling point, the first, first song on that record to the cover art itself, which is, you know, the Boston crew guys. I even kind of knew cause some of them skateboarded, you know, in my hometown, um, all of a sudden, like, 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 like all of those guys charging up the Boston state house steps, which, you know, years 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 later you know is, is is still a very resonant image from it's still a very resonant image um but what what that said what that said to me was what you're jumping on what punk is what you know we would discuss what what would you know also be called hardcore was wasn't just it, it, it was more than music um it was it was basically a means of reshaping the world as you saw fit, because these guys recorded their own records, um, released their own records, booked their own shows, um, which you know I was still trying to find out about. Um, you know, create basically created their own reaction, and and probably you know disruption to the generation before like. When they said the kids will have their say, that wasn't that wasn't just a title. It was a rallying cry, and you know, still still echoes for me today. I like that you touched on the skaters that were sort of in your area because I had to believe that a lot of people in that time frame that were connected were skating were also finding these same kind of beginnings of what would be punk and hardcore in that sense. Now, you said you were trying to find them, so I have to imagine you didn't quite have the social connection or it was still that small at that point. 
So where did where did where were some of the first people that you met that wasn't from buying the records? Where, where did you meet them? Would you meet them in school or was it them skating? And then what led you to your first hardcore show moment? Well, okay, there were the guys. It's good that you mentioned that um, because there were the guys who I didn't know right off the bat, but I I was kind of in somewhere between fear, awe, and who the hell are those guys anyway? And, you know, coming from Marblehead has a pretty rich history in the Boston hardcore scene. Um, you had people like Andy Strahan, the guitar player from DYS, yeah. where it's from there. Tony Perez from Last Rites um, is from there. Uh, and, you know, and, and as long as you mentioned skating, Jake Phelps, oh. who, you know, no, was was never in a band, but, but probably is historically more noted and more notorious than all of them. Yeah. Um, and he was, you know, he eventually he went from being sort of, you know, town terror to local hardcore legend to, um, you know, no, like really notable skater to the editor of Thrasher magazine. And you know, God rest his soul. He's no longer he's no longer among us. But like, you know, talk about talk about somebody who like, you know, came who who may have come off as a misanthrope, you know, from from the get go, but really was this like, you know, really carved carved a place for himself, you know, not only in life but in history, which is which is so incredibly hardcore if you think about it. Oh, absolutely. I mean. Is, is there someone who could be attached more to American skateboarding and so many different cultures that were heralded through the magazine than Jake Phelps? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, aside from like, like, you know, the, the Steve Caballeros uh, and the Tony Alvas and, and some of the Dogtown guys on the West coast. Yeah. I mean, Jake, Jake is one of like the true legends of skating. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. What's also interesting thinking about it is where both of your roots start is at the very essence of it. <laughs> you know, like here you are, the very, it's a skating, it's hanging out. And then, you know, what he would end up doing with, with, with Thrasher would completely change a lot of the landscape of American scubs culture. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like yeah. his, not that, not that the skaters that you mentioned weren't like hugely impactful, but I always believe that without someone to tell the story, do we ever know if it ever happened? And for his sake, the amalgamation of bringing the music into the skating, the art, I mean, whether it's the pusshead art and all the articles, and so many people got their first steps into how to become punk from Thrasher magazine while he was running it, that it's impossible to not see his footprint on so many things, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely jumping ahead in the timeline. Yeah, absolutely. I just, it's because you brought, it's just because you brought him up. It was just like, Holy fuck! I can't oh, yeah. believe you. I I knew you had connection, but I didn't realize like it was that tight that for that old school long. You know that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, there were like there were so many legends about the guy. I mean, I remember the biggest one was like, did you hear Jake sterilize somebody with a skateboard? <laughs> I, mean, I didn't even know what that meant. It's just like, it sounds so cool. Let it be. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like fine. Um, but you know, in, in terms, you know, and, and and the thing I also should probably bring up is. You know, I consider like when I came in, came into this as sort of very is firmly um, second generation, and 
you know, that's also, I think, part of my sort of Zelig-like luck. I actually like this um, take because I always assume what what time frame are we talking about? Is this is this post nineteen eighty or is this like right as everything's starting to come out with SSD? Oh, this is like I I, I got into it probably around nineteen eighty. 82. Oh, yeah. So that would kind of be towards the second generation. Yeah, I, I agree. Now, yeah. now, now I understand more what you're saying. Yeah, I, I agree yeah, wholeheartedly because there was that whole first prototype where they were emerging and it wasn't even really called hardcore yet. And then the kind of name kind of stuck by coastal. New York was calling it hardcore. California was calling it hardcore. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, by that, by that point, you know, you know, I, I, I count, like I said, I, I count myself second generation and, and those second generation kids were the ones who we may have missed, you know, like say the cuckoo's nest in Los Angeles or the free, you know, or maybe the freezer theater in Detroit or Madams, Oregon in DC. But, you know, I was still able to catch hall shows. I was still, you know, I still was able to catch, um, you know, the, the channel in its prime, um, you know, and, and really got to, you know, and, and very fortunately by the time I sort of figured out where to go and, and, and who to talk to and, and you know, what, what where, where these shows were actually happening, um, I was able to catch, you know, probably the end of some of the, the great ones, you know, the minor threats, the misfits, um, you know, SSD in their prime, um, you know, and, and really caught that like, Got got to got to see bands peak, but also you know was lucky enough to be able to have a shorter road to discovery, um, you know. And I think by by that point, you know, there were people. You know, you you kind of were able to readily figure out where to go to the shows. Um, you were able to figure out where to buy the records. You weren't. You know, you, it, it wasn't like people like say Al Barill who were literally like creating a scene in the same way that, um, you know, Ian in DC was creating a scene or, you know, the, the Stern brothers um, in Los Angeles were, you know, recreating or recreating, you know, the idea of punk. Um, but, you know, it, it was, it was all kind of laid out. It was all kind of laid out there. So we kind of got to see the bet, you know, we kind of like, lucked into it as it was as the wave was cresting yeah it was like a road wasn't there for al and them and they started making some headway towards a road so it was easier for you guys to find it so knowing that it was a little bit difficult for those i mean obviously so many listening are just so easily finding hardcore which is a click of a button lay out the steps it took you to find either the person or the the moment where you found your first like hardcore punk show um, God, I forget, I forget exactly what the first hardcore punk show was. Um, but it, it was, it was a comp, it was actually a combination of some of the bands I mentioned. Um, you know, plus local grades like Jerry's Kids and The Freeze, um, or, you know, some forgotten bands, like you know, some, some forgotten or not as well-known bands like Psycho or, um, let me see who... Who else did I bump? You know, I mean, Jerry's Jerry's Kids, who eventually became, I think became Boston's, you know, best band. Not the Flag Wavers, but the best one. Um, you know, I think it really it really came down to once I sort of figured out a point of entry, asking questions, um, and also connecting with people. Well, I should actually back this up. Um, 
because I'll, I'll, you know, one of my biggest, probably one of my biggest points of entry happened pre all of this. And it's also traceable to my first, um, my first job in the music industry, which was while in a record store in Salem, Massachusetts, I bumped into a guy named Don Rose who had an independent label called Eat Records. And they, they were more like just like a, a punk or post-punk, you know, like late 70s, late 70s, 1980 label. And they had bands like, um, you know, Rubber Rodeo, which is sort of like a, almost almost like a, like a, like Wall of Voodoo meets like country music. Um, and, and Don had this, you know, kind of like thriving little independent label. And for some reason I was able to strike up a conversation with him, I think at the Salem record exchange. And that led to him basically saying, okay, well, you're, you know, you're, you've got some, you know, boxing and you're, you're pretty interested in all this. Um, I got a job for you, kid. And it was literally just like stapling, stapling together um, press kits for his record label. But in that process, I, it, it really plunged me into, you know, local music press, um, you know, like who are we mailing these out to? Um, you know, it, it just, it was, it was one of those like little steps along the way. I mean, everything is a step along the way anyway, anyway, but it really allowed me to get another, another insight and, and, and kind of start finding my way. Now that also led to, you know, that state that uh, station I mentioned in Salem, in, in Salem, WMWM, me, you know, eventually talking with some of the, some of the DJs, you know, between as they were, as they were playing records and stri- starting to strike up friendships with guys like Chris Corkum, who, you know, is, is the guy who would eventually like turn me on to, you know, tons of local Boston bands and discharge and GBH um, and, you know, tons of, tons of punk I hadn't even discovered by that point either, be it, you know, bands like Eater or Generation X or all that. I mean, so, so it was just, it was just like kind of like a very, you know, roundabout step-by-step way you start peeling back the onion layers and you start discovering, you know, this, this whole universe that's right in front of you. Now, when I think about what you're saying, I want to know because there's so much that would come out of that whole world. How much do you think plays so big in Alboreal and how much would come later? Because I know that was your, your area is technically still in that like North shore. Right. And you just mm-hmm. said, yeah. you just said Jerry kids. Cause to me, it kind of fucked me up thinking about it. Like you had Alboreal, you had all that would come from the North shore and the beginning of like a Boston hardcore scene, but it mm-hmm. was the South shore bands like the FUs and the Jerry kids to me, that was like also important, but sometimes was it a time thing where, or did like, I, I don't know the Boston chronology, right? So I'm asking you, Al and them started it. And then was it the freeze and Jerry kids and FUs that kind of came in once something was paved or was it kind of like two separate paths and it kind of all came together as Boston hardcore. It was it was really multiple paths. Okay. Paths. Um, I mean, I mean, really, if, if, to go back, you know, the Freeze were there first. Okay. Um, the Freeze were, you know, from Cape Cod. 
they they existed as a band, you know, at the really like I think from '78 onwards. Um, you know, but you also remember you also had Gigi Allen and the Jabbers in in, in New Hampshire, um, and you also had had Boston, you know, like punk rock bands like Schmegmet and the Nuns, um, who would play, you know, at places like play like overage places like the Rat. Um, but I think where 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 you know was really where I think Al came in is Al kind of looked at that and said, okay, we, we want to create our scene. We want to create something that, you know, where, where, where the goal isn't, you know, the goal isn't to play that show in front of like 20 people, 20 people at the rat, but like carve, you know, carve a new identity as he was like completely influenced by, you know, what Ian was doing and what Ian was doing in DC. Um, so, you know, you, you, and and I think around 1980, late 80, 81, I'm not sure exactly what the date was, um, Black Flag, you know, shows, Black Flag shows up and plays the Paradise, which is probably the last time they came through the area with um, Des on vocals. And, you know, a few months later, you know, you've got six or seven like bands springing up, you know, in the, in the wake of that. And that's, you know, that's people from all over, all over the area. Um you know, again, you 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 had you had the North, you know, you had the North Shore guys, uh, you had the Braintree guys. You know, and the funny thing is, all those guys just were fr- were friends. They all worked at the same the same IHOP, actually. Wow. And from from the same IHOP, you had Bob Sensi from Bob Sensi from Jerry's Kids, Rick Jones and Brian Jones um, from Jerry's Kids, Chris Doherty from Gang Green, um, as well as. Um, Kevin Mahoney, um, who in a couple of years would be the singer, the singer of, who unfortunately has passed away, um, who would become a singer of Siege. And, you know, again, these were guys similarly, you know, on, on their own paths of discovery, um, you know, getting, you know, having been turned on to the Ramones, uh, having, you know, having been turned on to some of the same stuff early on that I was. But then, you know, there's that one galvanizing moment and, you know, a black flag show is probably, probably better than anything, you know, better than anything to really like, you know, detonate what eventually, what eventually became Boston hardcore. I wonder, um, I was thinking about this and I, and I didn't ask it. Was your first show the first live music thing that you had seen, or did you do any rock concerts like previous to that? Cause I know some people's oh, no. first hardcore show was like, that's their first live music. And then via this, there's also people who were at the big stadium shows and the rock concerts. So which, which was it for you? And what was your take the first time you were comparing the two? I mean, I think the first, the first show I ever saw um, was probably the Joe Perry project um, at Marblehead high school. Holy which shit. Is, you know, yeah. Which, which, <laughs> oh, you know, to, to me, who's, who, you know, there's there's somebody carrying the oomph of of, of Aerosmith. Yeah. Um but I'm trying to think. Um there definitely there definitely were a few like rock concerts in there. Um, but that eventually, you know, very early on I saw the Ramones play in Salem. And you know, so Joe Perry to the Ramones to you know local bands to then discovering hardcore. Um, was was a pretty, you know, pretty quick through line, 
so it didn't it didn't happen long after my first you know maybe maybe within a, a year year and a half um but i definitely i did it, it was it wasn't like an instant instantaneous hardcore immersion yeah it was a organic kind of like slow growth right yeah yeah i mean i mean you know and we'll get to this later i mean i never thankfully i i never threw away my who zeppelin uh alice cooper or black sabbath records or kiss records um you know, th those, those all still held weight for me. And I guess that's, you know, you could say the same thing about Al, like he'll never, you know, deny the influence of like cheap trick. And yeah. Aerosmith. <laughs> and, and, and like, you know, we, we, you know, it's, it's really funny because, you know, Boston had hardcore dreams or Boston had hardcore intents. Um, but like rock star dreams. <laughs> yeah, arena, oh, yeah. arena dreams. Absolutely. Yeah. Now was there, obviously trying to segue this into where you decided to do a fanzine with the, between Salem record exchange, Newberry comics, were you guys getting any local zines in your area or, or were there national zines coming up your way? Like I know there was one in Florida that was getting New York. Like were you, how soon were you emerged uh, or like exposed to is a better word exposed to the well, early eight or late seventies, early eighties zine culture? Oh God. I mean, I mean, it, it was almost time. I mean, aside from like discovering, you know, trouser press and cream and all the earlier rock magazines, um, you know, it almost went like, like zine zines and zine culture almost went hand in hand, you know, in discovering those early American hardcore records. Um, you know, in, in, in Boston, luckily we did have, you know, Newberry comics, we had rocket records and sagas, um, you know, some of the local record stores would, would carry zines on consignment. You know, you, I, I immediately was seeing things like forced exposure. Um, the first six issues of, of which are like, you know, like a Bible for East, for East Coast hardcore. Yeah. Um, you know, an issue of Touch and Go would creep in here or there. Um, you know, Glenn Friedman's My Rules fanzine was really important for me because all of a sudden... You know, this is. I think. I think I had gotten my hands on that before I had even seen. You know, seen a hardcore hardcore show. All of a sudden, like you're looking at pictures of HR, um, Danny from Wasted Youth, Cal from Discharge, Henry, you know, Danzig, and all of a sudden, you know, or Al from you know Al from SSD, like, you know, like literally like levitating um while while playing guitar and all of a sudden the performance stakes you know not just for you know the performance stakes just went way the heck up there and all so so all of a sudden that made me go okay wherever that wherever, wherever i'm seeing here i want to i want to i want to be there for that um but what you know what really probably took it over the edge for me was being in a local record store and bump and 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 seeing a, like a staple together, probably mimeograph. Do you remember mimeograph? Yes. Like ink and drums. Yeah. And like within the wheel. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as a mimeographed um, fanzine called Suburban Punk, I would eventually meet the guy the guy behind that, um, who you know like me was another Jewish kid from the North Shore a few years older than me named Al Quint yep. and Al, Al Quint, you know, sort of became like, you know, hardcore big brother for me 
turning me on to like an insane amount of, you know, just great records. Um, you know, I would, I would usually tag along with him, you know, to, to shows, be it, be they at the channel, um, in Providence, in New Hampshire, like he definitely, he definitely sort of, like, I, like I said, was, was, was a hardcore big brother and kind of a big influence, but I was also in my mind going, Hey, if Al could do that, I can do that. And that's really what spurred me on to start, you know, to start a fanzine, um, which wasn't triple X to begin with, but there was a proto version of that called suburban, suburban mucus. <laughs> and yeah. And it, you know, of course, what a fantastic name. Hell yeah. That's so awesome. Um, and, and if you, you know, it's, it's funny because when we went back and did the triple X book, we, we did a, um, we reprinted the three issues that of that I did and looking at that, you know, you just go, that's a, that's a snapshot of the kid getting off the sidelines, figuring out, you know, f figuring out like you could actually do this and, 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 and you could, you know, do it yourself. Um, and, you know, eventually I was, I was doing that with, a, with a, another guy um, who was going, I went to um, St. John's, St. John's prep school, which was a um, Catholic school in Danvers, although I was living in, living in um, Marblehead. Now, Jewish kid going to Catholic, Catholic school, complicated, but it was a great education and a great hang. Um <laughs> But the guy I was doing it with was a guy named Mark Dinseco, who, you know, went to Marblehead High, was a couple of years older than me. And we got we got three issues down the road and sort of his his life actually started taking a different direction. He almost became the singer of Siege. Wow. Um after yeah, about the time after Siege like semi broke up or Kevin, you know, or Kevin left. Um, but I took what was gonna be suburban mucus number four, and that, you know basically realizing that there was going to be a dead Kennedy show um, in Waltham mass was like, I'm going to get my first, you know, the first issue of, of what we're going to call it. There's all these, you know, you see, you see triple X all over the place. So, but there wasn't a zine called triple X, although there was, there was a, there was a zine, zine from um, DC called triple X thrill seeker. But I was like, there's nobody called triple X. I'll take that. It'll be good, you know, and of course, like realizing like shit, you know, this is like good proto branding. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I basically rushed together the first issue of Triple um, X. I think I did maybe 75 copies and got it, you know, took it to that first, um, that first, that Dead Kennedy show in Waltham, which was like, talk about a stacked lineup, Dead Kennedys, Jerry's kids proletariat um the freeze so, the freeze thank you very much yep and you know basically had it there and that was sort of triple x's entree interesting thing from that night was um there was a, there was a guy who who bought a copy of it from me who was from um pretty much pretty much the area and i didn't know it at the time um and this is somebody who I would bump into maybe once or twice up until um, five or six years later when his band white zombie took out an ad in triple X. So cool. It's so fucking cool. And, 
which is which is awesome. You know, it's, it's funny. It's 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 like you know, if if you ever go back to those old um, those first few White Zombie records, to me, I, I listen to those and I go, oh my god, they sound like Void but slowed down. There's so you know, there's so much cool shit that comes out of the late '80s into the early '90s as far as music would go on, and yeah. people from hardcore don't realize that. And this is something we'll get into later, but the cultural impact of hardcore would affect people like Rob and so many people to create music mm-hmm. that would go so far more commercially successful. And for those who don't know and didn't get the, the bridge nine book, which is uh, probably one of my favorite coffee table books. I have, I have Thank you. the, the triple X book is a true hardback book giant. So you don't have to squint to see the pictures. And it actually has that Rob Zombie mention in there for that zine. Yeah. So I wrote that. I wrote that note because, to me, I couldn't think of something cooler than uh, you were high school. So you're like either 15, 16. You knew there was this. You know this. There's awesome show coming through with fucking Dead Kennedys from San Francisco, and you're like, I have to get this magazine out for this. So you had some lead time. <laughs> And then how the fuck could you imagine that it would end up in Rob Zombie's hands of all people? It's so out of 75, it's so cool and random, but just shows you how small and tight that community was where a guy like Rob Zombie's not going to miss seeing the dead Kennedys outside of Boston if they're playing with all these bands, right? Right. And also how inspirational that was to, you know, not, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, I almost think that like half of the people who who have created, you know, great things in media are somehow tied to punk. Always, you know? always. And, and, and I think that that's just an example of like, again, you know, the, the promise of punk to be able to reshape the world however you want to see it. Um, by the way, on uh, going back to the zombie thing, um, let's also not forget that Shauna, uh, the bass player in the band, is from Raleigh, North Carolina. And if you look at the back of the uh, Corrosion of Conformity Eye for an Eye record, she took a bunch of the pictures that were on it. What? Oh, yeah. Holy crap. That's yeah. fucking awesome. Um, you know, like, like she's a COC kid. Um, you know, Jay Younger writes to the, writes to the accused from Chicago. Um, you know, and, and, and it's I also have I also have like a little side theory that um, White Zombie. I, I there was there was that second Void record that was never released, but everybody got a cassette of it, and you know it, at the time it, it did not sound like you know the the like unbridled vicious you know like Void of of a Faith Void split, but it was it was like the opposite. It was it was slowed down. It was like Sabbathy. It was just murky, um, and and it, to, to me, I listen to that and I go. I think that's where they got it from. I think that that was the spark that led to what white early white zombie became and boom. Wow. Now you're going to make me go back and compare, but that's, that's a beautiful thing about hardcore in that earliest stages is that an impact would just carry on and mutate and just get infested in so many different acts and different people that could carry the ideas, if not the sound, some of the ideas born from hardcore to a much bigger platform, you know? Yeah. And, and, and the thing, you know, one of the things that blows my mind still is like how it manifests, you know, how it manifests even now. And 
how it's, you know, how it's changed the mainstream. Um, you know, the, the biggest example I can come to off, off the top of my head is someone like Shepard Ferry, yep. who, you know, legitimately like a hard, you know, like very much of a hardcore kid, I think from South Carolina. Um, and that still is, you know, that's still his ethic and his still is, is, you know, his ethos, um, you know, and, you know, I, like, like, like I, I, I put it this way, um, as the years have gone by and, and I've had this like brilliant, like this really kind of like blessed, you know, blessed zealot like, you know, existence, um, you know, what I've realized is, well, hardcore doesn't define me, but it's informed me. And, you know, it's, 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 it's the spark that's kind of given me license to, you know, be it, be it somewhat foolhardy, you know, and, 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 you know, like, like sort of bliss, blissfully ignorant. So I'll just go do this anyway. Um, or, you know, in a very premeditative way, but it's, it's the thing that's allowed, allowed me to go like, yeah, I'll do that. I can make that work. Well, I, I feel like that's the nature of the the world of hardcore, especially at its earliest form, where the entry point was so so available because you saw Al, and this is a story for everybody. I saw somebody, I knew somebody, they did it. That's my peer, mm -hmm. so I can do it. And 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 there's so mm -hmm. many small little things that you learn along this way. And I mean you would run you would run the zine a lot longer than most people run their magazines or their zines in general in hardcore punk and yet i feel like there's so many lessons and just contacts and just things that you would glean as you progressed with putting out xxx and obviously i'd rather let you tell the story but i feel like the biggest thing people don't realize when they start doing these one thing like i'm going to help out and do this there's there's a skill set born in it there's uh, connections and friends made and lessons that you can carry on way past when that zine is over with, you know? Right. As you yourself know, you know, like, like, like look how, like when, you know, when you got involved with it and where you are now and the ball that you've carried. Yeah. Like, like, and that's, that's, you know, to me, the important thing, it's like, it's not where you come from or, or, or when you, when you, when you got into it or who was your first, what was your first show or what was your first band? It's what did you do with that knowledge, you know, and how are you carrying, how are you carrying it forth and how are you changing the world? Um, you know, but going back to that, that period, like 1983 to 1988, during which I, I did triple X. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that kept it going was it was really a fascinating time, you know, not just in underground music, but I think in music in general, that was a, that was a time. I think that's what I call that second generation. In some ways, is more influential um, now than even the even the guys that picked up guitars and you know, like started to write great you know great songs with with not many chords, um, because during you know I think during that time you got. You know, you didn't just get the tail end of, of, you know, season one, but you got, you know, the, you know, you got crossover, you got youth crew, um, you got indie rock, you got, um, you know, so many of, you know, you, you got, you got like, you know, I was, I was about to say cow punk. 
um, you know, sort of like like you know re rediscovery of, of of Americana. Like you got so many like different you know different iterations and different ideas that, that you know came off the same tree. That you know, and, and, and it was it was very easy to to keep going with triple X for twenty issues because there was a, there was a lot that kept you know holding my attention. I mean, look, you know. I'm I've I've been a diehard music fan since I since probably I bought my first record, which was the Who, which was um Tommy, um not by the Who, but the, but the movie soundtrack, and I actually didn't realize it wasn't the Who's version. So it took me a number of years to realize that Oliver Reed and Anne <laughs> Margaret and Turner were not in the Who. By the way, the the movie I think the soundtrack like kicks kicks way more of a punt takes way more of a punch than the who's version but we'll that's for another discussion um but yeah i think i think in general like it was just a you know it was just a time where there was a lot going on and a lot of you know ideas a lot of personalities a lot of 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 you know movements um a lot of great music you know came out came out in that in that you know six year time frame well one of the things that if just looking at the chronology you know your first your first show you're talking you go to give it out at the dead kennedy show and the last mm -hmm. one of the last bands that you're covering in it was bugazi all ignition and 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 there's a scope of hardcore that you would focus on wasn't regional it wasn't east coast you had a wide berth of what you were interested in and I know that you touched on the um, Eat Records and you touched on the Records Exchange. Do you think it was a combination of doing the the fanzine? You uh, you must have probably gotten to the whole handwriting letters and trading music at that time. So you, you had your ear pretty much all the way out to the West Coast and early on for an East Coast guy. Would you say it was the trading and all the stuff that would come from facilitating the fanzine that kind of exposed you? Or were you just are you going to put it towards you just being – a fan of music and records. I mean, I mean, I, I think first and foremost, a fan of music and records, because you, you got to remember going, going all the way back, you know, when there wasn't like a pronounced, you know, Boston hardcore scene, you still had these amazing records by X. You still had these amazing records by, you know, the, the adolescence, yeah. uh, that blue record, which I think is like one of the greatest American rock records, rock and roll records ever. Um, and still is like insanely, like as is is as influential as as any any record. Um, Black Flag, um, all the DC stuff, you know that was that that was already already out there. Um, so, but when you when when you start doing a zine and you start communicating with people, be it in on the West Coast. Or you know, even even in you know, Finland, um, Sweden, the UK, uh, or people you know, people like Pusshead, who you know, I'm, I'm I'm who was amazing, you know, an amazing source of like just knowledge and information, and and just a, you know, a great person to trade records with. Yes, I still have my my first copy copy of uh, my the copy of Jesus detestation he sent me <laughs> jesus yeah um but yeah i mean i mean that was another another person who like 
would trade records with, with people in different countries and like, you know, spread, you know, just spread the word. And fanzines were in many ways, you know, our Facebook, our MySpace, our internet, our means of, our means of communication. No, absolutely. In fact, that's something that Norma brought up and Darren had mentioned, you know, uh, when he did the first turning point seven and she said, all he needed to do was put an ad in maximum rock and roll. And that was it. Mm-hmm. It was going to sell copies. The fanzine was a social media network and it was the place people went to like, you know, the way like in the black and white movies, the guy goes to the corner, gives a guy a dime and picks up the newspaper and see it. That was fanzines. And even into my time going down to South street and seeing fanzines, like, you know, like mm-hmm. you'd said something earlier about reading zines and talking about reading about shows before you'd seen it. I knew more about hardcore from magazines than I had from my own eyes. Cause I came from metal. I had so many metal magazines and metal posters. And I wonder if because of the fanzine and the correspondence, did you get involved in any tape trading that would like cross into some of the, the eighties tape trading at a time, or was it kind of more punk hardcore focused and record trading? All of the above. Okay. Um, cause also, you, you know, you've, you've one thing to remember is about, or, or at least for me about 1983, you know, which is the time like 83, probably 84. Um, you know, Discharge was starting to sort of like go for a more metallic approach. Um, you know, negative approach had broken up. The Misfits, you know, were, were transitioning into Samhain. Um, you know, all of us, all like I got handed a little set, you know, a little brightly colored seven inch by Venom. Holy shit. And it was the from my friend Al Quint. And it was the <laughs> it was, it was the diehard seven inch. And the minute I heard that, I was like, this is, this is, is, this is louder, more obnoxious and more, you know, abrasive than some of the stuff that I love. And it's a little scary. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I was, I was sold. So, you know, you, you, you have that, then you have a band called Metallica uh, coming to town and, you know, like a little bit, a little bit of, 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 a, you know, buzz about, about them and, you know, the entire Boston crew going to see them and being, you know, being influenced by that, i.e., you know, second, second guitarists started to appear in, um, DYS, SSD, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, all of a sudden, like, like there, there, there was, there was a shift. And I, I think that was partially, you know, mu- you know, musicians becoming musicians, just like, you know, learning, you know, learning their craft and becoming just better what they do. And also just, you know, p- you know, one, one group of kids, like taking, you know, taking the influence of punk and hardcore and, and carrying that ball in a completely different direction. Um, so at that time, yeah, I was, I was excited by, by, by all of it. Um, also speaking of zines, you know, you also had kick-ass, a zine called Kick-Ass Monthly, which came out of New York, which is like this legendary, you know, legendary zine where, you know, you, I was, you know, you, you, you were discovering, although, you know, I, I had known about Motorhead, but it was the first place I ever really like read interview, you know, interviews 
with Motorhead and bands like Sirith, you know, Sirith Ungol, yeah. who I fell in love with because their album covers were painted by Michael Whalen and taken from taken from Michael Moorcock's Elric books. Um, you know, so the, the, it kind of just, it, it all kind of blended together, which I think getting back to the point of like that, that era of music in motion, um, you know, plus you also had bands like Black Flag, you know, Slow down. slowing down. Right. You, you know, when I, when I got, when I got um, my war, you know, side two, side two is a revelation. Mm -hmm. like, it was literally like, this is every, everything that I heard on damaged. Um, and I, and I, I, I tend to, I tended to like love this. I think I love the second side of that more than the first, you know, the first is like all the anthems. The second side is like life of pain and, you know, uh, damaged, you know, I think damage two and like all the sort of trudgy, like slower, more impactful stuff. And then that side two was just like longer songs. But by the way, quote unquote longer songs are like four and a half minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but like like just more, you know, just this like real like kind of emotive, slow, powerful, you know, music. Um you know, you had, th you had things like that, you know, you had discover, you know, you know, finding out about corrosion of conformity, seeing them at a YMCA um, in Boston in 1984. I think it was probably their second trip to trip to Boston. Um, and as good, they, they played with DOA and DOA is, DOA is a phenomenal band. And the band I walked out of there, you know, the, like with my brain blasted by that night was COC, which is, which, 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 which resulted in a long and still like very, you know, close friendship and relationship and other, you know, things that we we've been doing together to even now. Um, but yeah, I mean, COC, you know, sort of bringing like, you know, bringing Sabbath um, into, into the, into the equation or deep purple into the equation. Um, you know, so it, it just, it all kind of made sense. Yeah, I feel... And then it was... I, yeah, I, sorry. You know I was going to say, I feel like because of the time, you know, all these ideas were coming from their own, their own place, but they all merged in one track. And, yep. and, and you could see it in the different ways and the different small rooms. And this would carry on again and again 10 years later with different bands that would came with a different metallic sound and would play the hardcore shows. But in that early stage where, you know, these bands like Metallica are growing, there was no way there wasn't going to be a metallic influence in hardcore. And I, I know, obviously, as we talk later about yourself, like you would be, have a heavy hand in a lot of the metallic stuff, but it's awesome. To, it's awesome to hear from you and your perspective of seeing something like COC as they're coming up from North Carolina to Boston to play a YWCA, mm -hmm. you know, and the thing that gets lost on people often in, in internet debates, it's like, Oh, you know, I don't really like hardcore, you know, it gets, you know, especially this new stuff that's all slowed. And it's like, they've been slowing it down since almost the beginning at times, <laughs> you know, like for those who, the, for those who don't realize it and don't realize like that, that what black flag was trying to do, and, you know, like even even stuff like sometimes like the mob and them, they had their moments where they would slow mm -hmm. it down 
right before it was it's intrinsic to hardcore now uh before we get or the, or the bad brains yes exactly another great example if, I, I have to wonder if people by modern comparison were less concerned with trying to fit into the term hardcore, the term metal, by your standards, like by the people you were interacting with, or were you all just so enamored and excited about all the music coming out that the label didn't really have to stick as much? Well, I, th I think, you know, as, as hardcore became more codified and, you know, there, you know, obviously there were bands that were more generic. Absolutely. You know? and, and incidentally, some of those bands I go back to now and go like, wow, they were all... Wow, you know, maybe maybe I should have paid more attention to that, you know, graven image seven inch or that neon Christ seven inch. Um, but I I, th I think it was just it was just another direction for the mentality to go. Plus, you also have to remember that like, you know, Black Flag was enormously influential in that way, and also the whole the whole SST, um, you know, the whole SST thing, be it musically or be be it aesthetically um you know just just was was sort of like another cluster bomb detonating and 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 things trailing off in multiple in multiple directions you know it was, I, I can remember i can remember going to see um black flag i think on the slip it in tour and who was the opening band one of my favorite bands now saint vitus wow and and literally you know it was it was Vitus was with the original singer Scott Riggers um playing songs from you know I think the first first two records and half the crowd was like fuck this and half the crowd was like holy shit this is great and again what but that was also the that was also the case with Black Flag uh, you know people like you know they would they would open with these sort of dirgy you know twisted John McLaughlin, you know, John McLaughlin-y kind of opening, opening mantras. And, you know, it, 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 it bummed out the crowd that just wanted to hear, wanted to hear six pack or TV party, but it sort of elated um, a lot of us who just want to hear more. Now, at this stage, were you only going to shows in the New England area, or because you started meeting people through the fancy, did you start traveling outside of your scene? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there were shows. There were shows in. I mean, I, I first there were, probably up until about eighty five, eighty six, um, but you know, there were there were there were the beginning of trips to New York. Um, there were, I did spend time in Raleigh um, with the corrosion guys, um, you know, and I'm trying to think, I mean, obviously New Hampshire, Providence, um, you know, so I, I got, I got from early on a sense of like how scenes were also developing regionally, um, you know, especially like, like, you know, being, you know, even, even as close as, as close as, as, as Rhode Island, um, and seeing all the band, you know, all, some of the great bands that came out of there, or the, that South Shore, you know, and, and I almost, I, I almost kind of like lump, you know, the proletariat in there, but also like Verbal Assault, Idle Rich, Vicious Circle, um, yeah, you, you just, you just got a sense of regionality, which I think is one of the things that you know has has radically, you know, when when people say, well, what's one of the main differences between then and now? 
um, they're, it's almost that loss of that sense of originality, that sense of like, you know, us, you know, whether it be a Boston sound, a New York sound, a, a, a Minneapolis sound, a Chicago, a Chicago sound, um, you know, so you, but, but it was great to start to see that. And, you know, as I was corresponding with people, you know, well, the, the next logical, the next logical thing for me to do after, you know, getting my feet wet, wet, wet on the East coast and mid Atlantic was spend some time on the West coast. And I, at that point I was friendly with and writing or calling back and forth with, um, Pat Dubar and Pat Longry from Uniform Choice. Fuck yeah. And, and at that point ended up, you know, they're like, why don't you come out here and hang out? And that was probably, that was like more into, more into like 87, um, late, late 87, but like, you know, going, going out to the West coast and seeing like how different, how different it was, not just as a scene, but as a city and how many multiple, you know, multiple scenes and multiple ideas, you know, were, were, were in the city from like, you know, again, be it uniform choice or instead, or, you know, no for an answer, um, or, you know, fun, you know, final conflict who, who one, one of the most, you know, Ron is still, you know, one of my closest friends, um, 35 years later. And, you know, they were, it's, it's amazing how influ, how, how influential, sometimes quietly influential they've, they've been as a band, but also seeing like, you know, the, you know, I remember being at the lingerie, like on New Year's Eve and seeing the Dickies, you know, um, or, or going to SST with, with, you know, with Dubar because he had some business there. Um, so it was, it was sort of, that was sort of another sort of, you know, mind blowing slash mind expanding trip. And, and by the way, um, going out to LA for the first time and then staying, staying in Orange County is very confusing. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine from like a, like from a, like a Boston to immediately now you're out in Orange County. Right. Now you're in Fountain Valley. It's like, wait a second, LA's, oh wow, it's way over there. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was I was lucky I was lucky enough to see you know a, again back back to the notion of music in motion. Even on that even on that um, first LA trip, we got you know Dubois was like, hey, what? There's a couple of nights we're going to do some stagehand work for um, Big Frank from from Zeds. Fuck yeah, Big Frank Zed Records at, at, at um, for 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 you know he's running security at the um, Guns and basically Guns and Roses, sort of. I think I forget what tour that they may have. It may have just been sort of like a return from whatever tour at Perkins Palace, and and seeing that whole shift, you know, in in the, the ideology of like you know something vaguely connected to punk rock. Just fucked me all. You just fucked me all up with that, but that's so fucking sick. I mean, no. By, by the way. We're condensing and confusing, like probably about four years. No, no, it's just it's just cool to see that that's your that's your perspective because so much m continues to make more sense about your journey now. As you're as you're doing fanzines and obviously you're connected with people further and further out from your home scene. Was there what was the first inkling or see the thought that you could do something with like 
real financial or any kind of like real job within the music world, do you think? Or at the time, were you doing other stuff? Like, how did how did the idea of working in music start coming into your head? Well, it was it was a natural extension of doing a zine because what 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 came from you know because of course that wouldn't be enough for me. Um, I also had to write for local begin writing for local rock magazines. So there was you know there was a local publication called Boston Rock that you know I, I was able to start writing record reviews for, eventually start doing articles for, and. I don't believe that they paid, although I did get some, I did get a lot of free records out of that, which by the way, that's the other amazing thing about, you know, doing, doing a zine and my record collection will thank me, will still thank me to this day. Um, but what, what came from that was one day I got a call from a guy named Danny Fields and Danny, you know, and I didn't realize this at the time, but well, Danny Fields, you know, used to manage Band called the Ramones, and he's you know he was an AR person for Electra Records and signed you know the MC5 and the Stooges to Electra. So you know this I, I didn't realize it, but this was like an incredibly like important personality, you know, in the evolution of all this music. And at the time, he was um, editing a magazine called Hard Rock Video, which actually came out through the same publishing house that did um, Starlog and Fangoria, two magazines that you know I read since like. I, you know, since I was like 10 years old and he was like, Hey, I saw an article that you wrote on black flag uh, that was on the cover of Boston rock. Would you do a black flag piece for hard rock video? And I said, sure. will." and he was like, we even pay, we'll even pay you. Or, you know, he didn't say it like that, but, he, but, but basically he was like, yeah, we'll pay you 150 bucks. I'm like, Whoa, wait a second. I actually, <laughs> That's awesome. There's actually like income. Um, so I, I, I be, and, and this is like, as I'm starting, as I'm starting um, to go to Boston university. Um, and so that led to Pusshead saying, Hey, do you want to write for Thrasher? And me saying, sure. And him going, you know, you get paid X. I'm like, great. Um, so th th there started to be this trickle of like, you know, there started to be this like, other career that was that was running alongside of um, not only the fanzine, but I was also helping um, book and promote shows in the Boston area. Yeah, what was your what was your foot in that door? Because I know that you did you did quite a bit with that, and then you would eventually even do some touring, right? Yeah, um, I mean, God, what was what was like the first one? I, th I think it was like a matter of like being like a knowledgeable inquisitive and, 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 and unafraid, you know, young person, like finding out who the promoter was and, 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 you know, them asking me, them asking me about, you know, bands I was excited about. Um, so I think that that began sort of informing people who booked at places like the paradise, um, which developed into, you know, places like TT, the bears, starting tt the bears in cambridge starting to do shows and they kind of pulled me in to help you know book and promote those shows sometimes you know getting calls getting calls from like different you know different bands i knew of or or being asked to sort of like promote or co-promote and 
you know, so I, so I, I basically found myself um, having triple X fanzine as well as like in, in a very poorly defined and ill-structured, you know, production or triple X presents, um, you know, identity. And that was great because that, that also put me in, you know, in the orbit of, and were, you know, meeting and working with, you know, bands, bands early on, like the Descendants, um, on their first couple of U.S. tours, uh, Seven Seconds, who I met on their first U.S. tour, I did done a couple shows for, um, you know, the Rollins Band, very very early on, um, it, you know, I think I think one of the last shows I did was in 1988, which was Fugazi's um, first show, first show in the Boston area at Green Street Station, which was a room that probably held about 250 people. And the show was nothing short of like of jaw dropping. And that was even before um, the first Fugazi EP came out. That was his own word of mouth. Yeah, it was just, it was like, it was Ian's band. Yeah, so we were going to come out to it. Now, yeah, and, and, I want to ask you something before we get further along. There was that period in that 84 to 86 zone where some people thought that the first wave or the, you know, their, their idea of first wave had kind of dropped away. And actually, even Walter had said on an episode that when he was in high school, someone's like, oh, you're into punk? Here's all these records. I'm kind of over it. Did you experience anybody that you came up with start walking away as you're getting more and more immersed in it? I mean, you could you could see people's temperament about it changing. And you could see, you know, people going, people going from very active participants to, you know, starting to hang out on the sidelines a little bit more. Um, unfortunately, no, 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 nobody bequeathed me their, you know, their, their, like, probably now, you know, insanely valuable records. Yeah, he, the, store, the, the records um, he got were, like, the most sick English oi stuff. That you're like, wow, the fuck did he got in high school? <laughs> I mean, I was, I was able, um, I was friends with a, with a really, like, a very underrated local band called Psycho. And yeah, you mentioned them a couple of times in the fanzine, and I think yeah. I, I love that there was the Psychos from New York, and there was Psycho from Boston, and it's like, fuck, such a good name. So I, I hope someone does a good band with it later on now because it's such a good name. So yeah, somebody needs to needs to needs to reinvent Psycho, you know, now. Um, but yeah, their guitar player Johnny X, you know, at, at pretty much a, a bargain rate, bequeathed me. I want to say a copy of three hits from hell. Um, the first youth brigade, um, seven inch, um, God, um, the, the, the Avengers EP Whoa. that was produced by, by Steve Jones. Um, a couple of danger house singles. Yeah. So, so I got those at a pretty cheap rate. Um, but you know, you could see some people, some people were losing, you know, for for some people, it was it had changed and it, it had gotten different and and you know it was no longer different different personalities different ethics, uh, different modes of behavior became involved, and you know for some people it was still exciting and for some people you know there were too many fights, um, 
you know, too much, you know, it was, it was too much of this or too much of that. And some people said, yeah, I'm, I'm on to something else. Um, before we get more into your personal career, I'd like your a little bit of perspective. Generally in this vicinity, you see some of the bands who are getting quite popular because of the explosion in hardcore shift their sound sonically and think that they could take it a different direction. And this isn't just limited to one sound, but I think this is a con a common reoccurrence that a band gets to a point and shifts, but being at such a, like a close level, how do you think people were received when some of these, uh, you know, like the forebears and hardcore in certain areas started shifting their sound and look towards uh, what they thought would be a more metallic or a bigger audience and how it looked when it didn't really work out for them? I mean, I think, I think, you know, like, like, like a couple, I can think of a couple of great examples. Um, DYS exactly, you know who who shifted like who's whose shift from Brotherhood to the self titled record was maybe like a year and a half, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and I you know they obviously the audience didn't didn't go with them. Um, I think that they were doing something that was honest, you know, to them. Um, I think that they were influenced there's a very there's a by the way there's a very in, interesting like midpoint in there in the, between those two records where you got to hear the evolution where, where there was that evolution into like a like a slightly slower more metallic sound and maybe it was just a case of the song slowing down and being a little bit longer and having more guitar solos and adding in a second guitar player but there was there was kind of like a sweet spot which was unfortunately never really documented i have the tape oh shit um <laughs> They have a really good live cassette of the stuff um, where they, you know, where they kind of found a sweet spot, but they pushed it probably a little bit too far. And, you know, the audience that, that adopted them with brotherhood just didn't go along, didn't go along for the ride. Um, and there were people would still turn up at the shows, but as they closed out, what was going to, what was a, um, Basically, basically a showcase for Michael Lago at um, Electra at the Paradise one afternoon, which I think ended with a cover. I think it ended with a cover of Last in Line and maybe a cup. No, that was their last. It was their, it was that was actually their last show a couple, a few, like a, about a month later. But you know, like as they ended with a cover of Last in Line and a couple of you know acoustic based songs, the crowd just didn't didn't go with it. Yeah. Um, and you know, at that point, the band, you know, it was it was it was time for the band to sort of all go their separate ways. Ironically, you know, Dave Smalley would end up in Dag Nasty in a year, and Jonathan Anastas would end up in Slapshot, you know, in a year. So, you know, I think everybody, I think I think it's like it's it's like anything, you know, you have to sort of you have to sort of push your abilities and stumble a little bit to really figure out what you're good at. And I think that that's, you know, there was a little bit of that. Um, I think another really interesting example was Dagnasty, who, you know, was firmly, firmly like a product of like that, you know, even though it was, it was, you know, first generation people, um, it they, they really like were a product of that, you know, second generation and, and went through many, you know, many different musical f- phases sort of as, you know, particularly as they changed singers, um, 
but there were things that, you know, and, and, and what was interesting with them was, is they developed different kinds of fans. You know, there were, there were those initial like fans who came along with, can I say that were like, yes, this is, you know, a rebirth of, of, you know, the hardcore values from, from, you know, that, that, that we, we, you know, grew up with or heard about to people who, who began to accept them in, in their own right. Um, and, 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 you know, basically accepting them as part of like this sort of, you know, musical sea change. And, you know, it, with, with them, it, it got to a point where um, the, you know, the audience, you know, there, there were great shows in, be they in Boston or New York um, or, or, you know, Long Beach. But, you know, there were a lot of um, lonely Tuesday nights in Missoula, Montana, you know, um, and there got to be more and more of that. And, and, you know, time and musical inclinations and opportunities opened up, I think, for all those guys. That's a great segue into the next stage of your thing, because I feel like at some point you see more opportunity from all the connections. Now, obviously, you're still writing for magazines. You're doing some promotion. Mm -hmm. But what do you think was like um, your first opportunity to go into something like even further down in the actual music world than just as a writer? Um, well, I, I had tried my hand at playing in a couple of bands. Um, the results of that were spotty and dubious <laughs> um, at best. Um, there's a record. Uh, from a band I was in called Apology. And some people really seem to like it. And some people have the same opinion that I do of it, which which is if that band was all on the same page, it might have been a better record, but it's, in, let's put it this way, in quotes, interesting. There was a slightly better band after that called Grin, which was basically like a very good sort of like Swizz ripoff. Okay. Um, we put out a seven inch on an Italian label called Breakpoint Even. Uh, but you know, kind of with, with, with that, um, you know, one thing led to another, um, my, my freelance writing career was, was, was starting to take off a little bit more. I was definitely starting to pay the bills, um, while I was writing for, you know, Thrasher, um, rip magazine which had start which had started um in 80 i want to say like late 86 early 87 um i started writing for kerrang um you know at the time basically anybody who would have me who where, where the word metal was in the title i was usually i was usually sort of like the the the, the thumb into into the underground with those magazines um and you know so that was starting to do better um Coming back from seeing my coming back um, from one Thanksgiving at my parents, um, the apartment I was living in had been broken into, and it started. Was it Thanksgiving? No, it wasn't Thanksgiving. It was some other holiday. Um, but one thing led to another, and I found myself moving moving to you know moving to New York, where I had been starting to go anyway, seeing shows for you know some time and starting to interview bands down there and just starting to, you know, like, like either, either, you know, become friendlier with people I was already friends with, um, like, you know, like Ray Capo or, or John Purcelli, you know, or some of those early, early, like 
youth crew guys because they're most of them are about my age um and we're all coming from a very similar experience and you know or or, or just starting to build new friendships and new relationships down there and uh you know i found myself moving to new york in 1989. now i continue you know i, I continue as a journalist from you know from 89 to 93 um pretty much pulling my pulling my income exclusively from my writing but in 1991 something you know pretty profound happened which was a little record called nevermind came out and that record was basically the punctuation on you know 15 20 years of the development of an american underground and was legitimately responsible for a pretty seismic sea change where you know i i i'll sum it up and just say we all got cool jobs um what happened with me was you know after after being that guy who started covering you know be it nirvana or helmet or you know Rollins band or you know all these things that were sort that sort of had like a very direct through line to my early days in hardcore and the early days of triple x um you know i was on a flight coming back from from los angeles um because this was also an era where record companies would fly journalists around and um i was interviewing and i think i was doing a piece for rip and probably for kerrang as well on my old pals white zombie and i bumped into a guy named jason flom on a flight from um la to new york and i kind of knew jason because i knew his fiance at the time who worked at profile and at the time rock hotel records you know yeah. home to chromags leeway um Peter and the Test Two Babies, DOA, and Discharge on their Grave New World record. Um, um, his fiance Wendy was working there, and we just got to talking, and he started picking my brain about bands. And one thing led to another. And I, a few days after getting getting home from that trip, got a call asking if I was interested in consulting for Atlantic Records. And and at that point, I was like, Wow, that's you know. How does that work? Did you did you actually know the job or were you just more kind of like did you understand what he was asking about or did you have any kind of like vague interpretation or was it were you already kind of sort of aware what that job actually entailed when he asked you for it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I definitely knew what the parameters of it were. I knew that you were you were supposed to be somebody with relatively good taste um, who would help sort of identify and then uh, sign bands to major labels. Um, and, 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 you know, by the way, throughout all this experience, like I realized that, that my, you know, I was best suited to be on the other side of the, um, be on the other side of the desk versus, you know, being, you know, being a band member or, you know, living in that world. But I was more intrigued by, you know, how do you make things, how do you really make things happen, you know? Who are these? Who are these mysterious sort of gatekeepers and 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 you know folks on high and these names you hear muttered um, that you know were were the gatekeeper gate, gatekeepers, um, string pullers or you know just just people who who like were fortunate enough to help 
you know, bands sort of get to get to the proverbial next level and be able to like, you know, have a have a level of success that nobody ever dreamed possible way back when. Um, so I came in, I met with Jason. Um, we started talking about more bands. I met um, Danny Goldberg, who was the president of Atlantic Records at the time. Danny, I kind of knew because as he was the man, he was the manager of Nirvana, Sonic Youth, the Beastie Boys, um, people I had interviewed, people I knew. Um, you know, I mean, keep in mind, like Nirvana, you know, from when pre pre Nevermind for me was Dave from Screams Band. Yeah, you had them, and you, <laughs> yeah. and, you had, and you had actually featured them as well in XXX. Oh, quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, Scream, Scream was like a very talk about a through line band. You know, even even to now, um, you know, be it be it Foo Fighters or you know what you know the the various musical projects that Pete Stahl, Pete, Pete and Franz Stahl are involved with to Scream themselves still existing. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, so. It was it was it was it was all very much in my backyard. Now, so I come in. You know, one of the greatest memories I had, and one of the, probably the biggest wake up moments I had was um, the first A and R meeting I was asked to come to was this circle of, of people. You know, it, it basically was in J, it was in Jason's office, and it was the A and R team, and in walks Amit Erdogan, the founder of Atlantic Records. The guy who basically, you know, he, you are rock and roll, right? Zeppelin, Stones, um, you know, Aretha Franklin, um, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And you're like, like, you know, it was kind of dawning on me like, wow, this is, this is actually kind of heavy. Um, because this was, this was a name that like transcended all of it. And you know, we had, you know, so, so people were throwing out like different bands they were into and, and things that were discussing. And I think I had mentioned, you know, Godflesh, like being, you know, potentially like a next Nine Inch Nails um, or, you know, The Obsessed being like, you know, the next Alice in Chains or, you know, uh, the a band that I did end up end up signing as I transitioned into being an A&R person there, which was Jawbox. But in the in the course of the AR meeting, one of the AR people brought up um, a band called the Snapdragons. And, you know, Amit looked at me and said, What do you think it'll sell? And the AR person said, oh, I think, you know, about 50,000 copies. And, and Amit looks at me and goes, I wipe my ass with 50,000 copies. I'm like, damn. Okay. That's a that that's that's a first taste of a little bit of the reality of all this. Mixed with great, you know, in, 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 in the, in the, in the court of greatness as well. Um, so, you know, I, I guess my, you know, eventually after going after, you know, initially after going after some of these bands, um, I, it got to a point where there were enough things that they were serious about going forward on. And it got to a point where. I was in Jason's office and at a certain point it, it, it literally became, Hey, there's an office down the hall. Just take it. And entree, I became a um, employee of the, um, of Atlantic records in 1993. There's a, 
quite a bit of conversations on this podcast and other episodes regarding the explosion of Nirvana into the out of the subculture underground and into the mainstream and the its relation to how record labels started delving into stuff and your name was brought up a few times always in a positive way as being someone who no you know we never never otherwise would let it happen but it's interesting to hear it from your perspective as well because so many people have said you know it was that nirvana record and the you know the jump out of sub pop and into the bigger thing and how big that song was that really changed culture and made these major record labels think about investing in more bands like it was that your perspective or do you think it went further than that well i think i think it goes further it goes before that okay um because i think you know and and this is a whole other three-hour discussion but you know you can go back to you know the first vestiges of like a punk underground being signed to the majors x husker do wow the replacements soul you know eventually soul asylum to a&m um, but you started to get into, you know, around 89, 90, 90, around 80 or 9 or 90, you know, you've got Sonic Youth being signed to Geffen. You've got the Beastie Boys, you know, like, like no, no longer fight, you know, making us check our heads and no longer fighting for their right to party, but going in, in somewhere cooler, deeper and referencing, you know, venom on 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 check your head you know there's a, that great venom sample on check your head um you know the buckle surfers um you couple that with you couple that with the first Lollapalooza tour you know in the summer of 1990 which you know rollins buttholes nine inch nails susie and the banshees um you know, Jane's Addiction, a tremendous like like who were a tremendous you know force and sort of like changing the nature of 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 how you know rock how rock was perceived at the time and sort of you know basically starting starting to dust off you know the the kind of more odious you know aspects of hair metal. Um, and by the way, there's some good aspects of hair metal too, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, and you know, this, the stage was kind of the stage. And look, Metallica, you know, Metallica, like, you know, re recording Misfits songs and Killing Joke songs. Like it was all kind of there in, 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 in the ether. And it just, it just needed that one tipping point. And, you know, the arrival of Nevermind was that tipping point. I, I'm actually fucked up that you brought up as as early as that because it definitely changes the bar to where it began. And in reframing some of my thoughts going forward, I'm going to have to take that into consideration that the commercial success or at least the commercial eye was on punk sooner. And I appreciate I right now I really appreciate you pointing it out because I'd always yeah. I'd always ignored or not understood the perspective from that point of view. But it is true, and so I guess I'll reframe what I said to you. Well, actually, let me let me jump let sure. me jump in there for a second, because you know here's 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 the great thing about that whole era, and you know did did the majors the majors which were basically designed to you know company you know obviously their business entities designed to sell a lot of records, 
Um, and I think artist develop artist development was something that was ingrained in the process, but not probably not the design, not, not completely the, the, the goal. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, you have, you had a period in time where bands could develop their sound, develop their audience, you know, have, have a touring base, um, and, and developing, developing to great songwriters, you know, the, the, you know, the Dave Perner who wrote Runaway Train was a different Dave Perner than the one, you know, who was in the band Loud Fast Rules, you know, Bob yeah. Mould, you know, it, it, it took writing in a, well, actually, I mean, all, all the Husker, Husker um, elements are there on the in a freelance seven inch, but like it took a you know, it took a few records to him to get to that point. Um, you know, it took a minute for, for the world to understand, you know, not just the music of Sonic Youth, but what they suggested culturally. Um, and in, and it took a minute for people like, you know, Rollins, um, to become, you know, more, more than the angry guy, you know, to, to show the world that, you know, this wasn't just an angry, an angry guy from DC, but like, a legitimate, a legitimately driven, thoughtful um, artist, you know, and and care, you know, super charismatic personality in his own right. So you had this, like, you had this time um, where where people, people and bands and audiences could develop, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't so instantaneous. And I think, luckily, you know, just just um, fast forwarding to you know, the, the hardcore world that we talk about, you know, that we talk about now, that's at least one, one of, one of the better things I think that remains and retains in it is that there is, there is a little bit more bands have the ability to, to develop a little bit more, you know, in that, in that respect. Did you walk into that job understanding artist development or were you taking it from the perspective of the zine writer who kind of saw bands emerge over the years? And did you have, I guess what I'm asking is, did you understand art as management and art as development, or were you taking it solely from the perspective from the journalist and that side of things, and had to learn how to develop? I was about to say, I was about to say hell no, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I had a vague idea and a vague inkling, and 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 some some you know some thoughts about what that entailed, but. No, I mean it's 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 a learning process that continues to this day. You know, it's it's the the you know the great thing about what I do, what, what I started doing in 1993, and what I do now as a is as you know as a vocation and um, you know something that's been been an incredible part of my life um, is I've gotten to work with a lot of great artists, work with a, work on a lot of great creative projects. Um, but the best thing about them all is no, no two are alike. And you learn, you learn so much from, from, from you're an idiot. If you, if, if you don't take the lessons of each project to heart and, you know, luckily I've, I've gotten, I think I've gotten better at, as the years go by, but it's, but it's a, it's a never ending. It's a never ending process at that, you know, coming into it in 1993. No, nah, I didn't, I didn't know shit. You were very important in one of my favorite hardcore records, 
and that is the Civ Wrecker. And that's wow. just because of the fact that, you know, I grew it into hardcore at the time when Gorilla Biscuits had just broken up, and all I had was the Ineffect VHS and old guys telling me, oh, you miss Gorilla Biscuits. And then right around the time of the first Warp Tour and really getting my feet deep into, like, actual underground hardcore music, here it is. Here's Civ and this record. And we were talking to Wally on the show, but we, we cut the episode to do part two where we're going to talk into Civ. But I'd love to hear your perspective in why you thought or saw the in like the, the reason to have them on Atlantic record. Okay. So so one 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 um thought by the way, going back to that in effect VHS. Yeah. I did try to get them to cover that song distance. Oh like, shit. Gets, yeah I, I really I really wanted them to do that, you know, be it on the first record or you know the second record which I was involved in you know at the very beginning of um, but no, I mean, that was, that was as simple as, you know, my friend running into my friend, Sammy, um, who I've known since he was 14, um, when he had literally, you know, first, first joined youth of today, um, that was literally running into him, him handing me a cassette that had two songs on it. One was can't wait one minute more. And the other was et tu brute. And going, oh my God, this is incredible. You know, it, and it was literally down to the power of like a song. And, you know, th they had written, you know, they had written a hit with Can't Wait One Minute More. But he said, hey, we're, we're doing a, we're, we're shooting a video tomorrow. Um, I think it was at Silver Cup Studios in, um, in Astoria, which was, which is where I was living at the time anyway. And Marco Siega, um, was directing it. Marcos has gone on to, you know, directing a lot of TV and some, and I guess some films, which I'm forgetting exactly which ones they were now. Um, but, you know, I went down there and, 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 and saw them doing the whole, um, you know, Montel Williams, you know, goes hardcore show and was like, okay, this is amazing. This video is going to be incredible. The song's incredible. I gave the you know I gave the cassette to Jason Flom the, um, that Monday, and he heard the song. He flipped out, and you know within within two weeks, uh, Civ, the band Civ was signed to Atlantic Records. Really, you know, again that was a, that was a case of a band with like a legitimate, um, you know, a legitimate like history and name and you know in organic development as gorilla biscuits but what really leveled the playing field in that case was just a song and that's a song you still you still hear being on you know serious or in car commercial today i i am still blown away by its commercial visibility at the time and contrasting that probably with bands that have toured more played more but it just it's I don't know. Was that just a perfect timing? But it, it just seems like that. Can't wait one minute more. Just was boom, and it was out there. And I knew it because I was wearing a Sib shirt from one of their first shows that I'd seen them at. And there was like kids in our high school who knew who knew that was who were more from like the Smashing Pumpkins and 
goofy 90s band shirts like oh i heard that band i'm like was kind of mad like how the fuck did you find out <laughs> even though all, <laughs> even though it was on mtv in 120 minutes and everything it still felt like an r thing so it must have been awesome for you i mean i don't want to jump if there was things that you did beforehand but for me the civ the civ record is just like one of them like holy fuck you know like how does this how does this band which is like a pure hardcore record and in so many ways just get the kind of scope and power behind a, a, a label like Atlantic at that time, you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it was one of the only pure hardcore records, you know, I think, I think really maybe sick of it all before them. Yeah. With East uh, West, right. With East West and, and scratch the surface. Um, and that was pretty concurrent as well, but it was really one of like the only, if, if not like, you know, the other only hardcore, pure hardcore record at the time they had come out on a major label. But at the same time, that was also post Green Day, post The Offspring, post, you know, the, 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 the rise of Rancid. Was the Bad Religion, um, was the Bad Religion Stranger in Fiction in, in, involved in kind of that influence as well, you think, with getting the market? Okay. Yep, I think, you know, and I was about to say Bad Religion, um, you know, with, with I mean, basically, basically that was the era where, you know, Epifat sort of took over, you know, took, was, was the next logical thing to happen after Green Day. Um, because, you know, and again, Green Day was, was an, another example of like right band, right development, right, you know, background and, and the song that really leveled the play, you know, the song slash songs that leveled the playing field, you know, kind of in the same way that, um, you know, Nevermind had done, had done before. So, but I think when the case, bad, yeah, Bad Religion, who was the second band I signed, to Atlantic Records, um, they, you know, I, I think they had a lot to do with changing changing that climate because it was, you know, they weren't just pure pop, you know, they weren't like just like they weren't as poppy as say, you know, a Green Day, you know, they were faster, you know, there were there there were it was it was lyrically denser. There was a lot more being, you know, being expressed. Like I, you know, Brett and Greg are still like phenomenal songwriters and lyricists, um, and that that all kind of set the stage for for you know Civ to happen, and for a song that was part punk, part hardcore, part new wave, part you know, may, maybe with 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 a hint of ska. Um, all to kind of coalesce and, and and have people be like, yeah, I love that song. And by the way, the, the cool thing about that T-shirt, I don't know if you noticed it, is think of think of the similarities between that and the SSD T-shirts. All right, now you now you got me fucked up. <laughs> all, all part of the plan. Damn. So when you walk into Atlantic, do they give you a playbook or do they give you like a metric or they give you like a we need you to fit something that's going to do this amount of time, like this amount of records. And we wanted to have a sound or are they going for something organic and they kind of wanted your specific background to kind of lend to what the direction they would take some of their signings. Well, it was, it was the Atlantic, you know, it was the, it was Atlantic that was run by Danny Goldberg and Danny came from as organic, you know, as organic and as artist 
driven, you know, even, even back to his days of being Led Zeppelin's publicist Wow, in the seventies, um, you know, through, you know, man, you know, managing Sonic Youth, managing who's managing Nirvana. Um, so they wanted, you know, they, they kind of were like, well, you're from the right. I think their thinking was, okay, well, you're from the right background. It was the Atlantic, you know, at the time Atlantic was signing the Melvins, um, signing the Lemonheads. And, 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 you know, that was the sort of, you know, Evan Dando superstar era of the Lemonheads. Um, you know, basically they were transitioning from the Atlantic of say, you know, Skid Row and um, Saigon Kick and, you know, some really like a really great like metal era before that, by the way, because they did put out, you know, let's not forget like they did, they did the Megaforce deal, um, I think in the late early 80s, early 90s, and it was like, you know, Testament, Overkill, Vicious Rumors, uh, King's X, like, you know, so there was this kind of like, like great, like little culture that, it was a rock label. And they were like, look, you seem to know what you're, you know, you seem to know this music. Um, do your thing and, and, and bring us, you know, bring us, bring us, you know, the best ones out there. And, you know, the first, the first band I signed is a band that I'm still insanely, I'm, I'm insanely proud of and, and is still a, you know, career high point for me. And that was Jawbox. Hell yeah. Again, again, echo back to, you know, echo back to the eighties. Um, Jay Robbins, bass player for government issue. Post, post his time in GI, um, you know, put out two amazing records on two amazing records out in discord. And I would, you know, it, but, but I thought that there was a kind of a, you know, there was a, a melodic sensibility and there was, you know, something that would, I felt, I felt at the time that there was something that would work in the mainstream. Um, you know, the record they, the record they made, uh, on their signing on their signing to Atlantic was a record called Fear on Special Sweetheart. And it was probably probably a little you know it was, it was much more musical and probably a little bit more abrasive than the first two Discord records. But it's a record that that is a you know and it's it's you know by major label you know by major label by punk rock standards it was a it was a soaring success. I think it had done like forty or fifty thousand records. Um, by ma by major label you know standards, even though it was you know cover cover of alternative press, as much amazing, you know, press and recognition as you could throw at a record. It was kind of, a, you know, it was probably a failure in their, in their eyes, but it was, it was at least a great credibility chip. Um, and, you know, I got to make two, got to, got to work on another record with them. And Jay, you know, Jay is still a very good friend. And now that they're, they're back touring, I'm, I, couldn't be happier when you know the times pre-COVID that they that they rolled into my town. When I think about what you just said, it, it goes back to all the way back in the beginning with college radio. It's it's something that we kind of take for granted now with the streaming services and the all the different access points with different apps that 
college radio hasn't had the same kind of impact, but I imagine it was, you were cognizant of its power then. And obviously with the CMJ and all these different things, were these things that you had because you'd grown into it, you know, from your earliest, you know, from the earliest points of the story, you knew how to kind of wield that and influence with that. And was that something that was like in the playbook to use like the alternative outlets as well as the mainstream to promote stuff like job backs and later on with you into another stuff. Like, is that was your thought process? Like, well, we have this to build up a burgeoning sound, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was, you know, you gotta remember, I mean, that's part of my own journey, you know, be, be it fanzines into magazines, um, you know, college radio, which was always there, you know, becoming a major marketing component, you know, in, in the success of, you know, many, any record really from, from, you know, the SS, from late, you know, from, from at the SST level to the major level, like it was, you know, that, that was, you know, that was in the marketing plan. Um, but it was all, you know, the, the funny thing, you know, I look at all of this, and I just go, it was all a natural, you know, seen seen from a from kind of a macro perspective, it was all an evolution from you know being being from from what inspired me to do my first fanzine. Holy shit! I mean, it, it definitely all ties right back in. And so, do you have the same kind of rush and of excitement? that you would like say when a new zine could come out when like, how, how do you feel like when there's a success in the A&R at that stage versus like earlier on when like a new zine like um would come out, like what were your, where were your um like your rewards coming from? And like, what was it like to feel like when you got them to sign or was it later on when the rec- record come out? Like where does the reward come in as an A&R guy versus zine guy? You know, I, I think once again, I, I go, I go back to the notion of, you know, punk rock has informed, you know, not defined, but informed my journey and my trajectory. Um, you know, successes, successes are, are great. You know, particularly ones that, you know, are overarching the ones that, you know, you know, we're, we're, look, when a lot of people, you know, when, when a record goes gold, or a band becomes like a very buzzed about band, it's enormously gratifying. Um, but there's there's a level of like, okay, cool. For for me personally, the excitement, you know, a lot of the excitement is what comes next. What do we do, what are we doing next? You know, it's like it's, it's like what are we doing next? You know, who who's that next like band that's sort of going to come come down the chute and blow my blow my mind. Or who's going to be that next band that's going to come down the chute and make me go, I don't get this right away. Hmm. Oh, shit. I get this. You know? Um, and, and and to me, that's that's still the buzz. That's still the excitement. Um, you know, I, I, I listen to, I mean, music is, music is a constant, a constant in my life, you know? I think I think I've I've orchestrated a you know existence, like, base you know in 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 some ways where I can just listen to music you know and 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 be be involved in it and there's still a you know 
there's still an enormous charge about that. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question. No, no, I like it. I love where you're going with this. But it's, it's, it's still part, you know, it's still part of the, the that discover, that discovery is important, is, is, is part of the payoff for me as well. You know, like if, you know, getting my, getting my hands on that last Gulch record, you know, um, like how cool was that? You know, um, getting my, you know, getting the, getting the demo for some of the bands I've signed recently, including, you know, Frozen Soul, um, or Sanguasugabog, you know, like just the different, you know, or, or even the last time, I, the last time I saw you at a show, um, yeah, that that was like was, the church show, yeah, the church show where, where you know I, I went, to, I, I went to see uh, Fuming Mouth, you know, and and like that's part of the buzz for me, you know, it's like, like, like crank it up and let's let's continue to destroy our hearing, and you know, here here's somebody here's somebody else, you know, like doing something doing something with the same fervor that uh, the bands you know got us excited in the first place well that's that's actually great you said that because i wonder as you're rolling from 1983 into 1993 and beyond if if that same excitement from the the 80s scene is is feeling that way in that 90s scene where the buzz is coming alive and different bands are trying different things and breaking that homogenization that happened in the, like the generic stereotypes of hardcore. You had to be excited about the bands that were willing to break out and try new sounds. Right. I think, I think that was exciting. It was also exciting seeing some of the homies get, you know, the homies get some success. Fuck yeah. I mean, Sib, Sib on, Sib in a suit on MTV has got to be, it's so surreal from watching the in effect video, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, there's that. You know, seeing, seeing Rollins doing Liar on the Grammys, um, seeing, you know, a band like L Seven, who I first met when they toured, they did um, one of the first Bad Religion U.S. tours. You know, them becoming successful. Um, you know, and 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 that's to say, that's to say nothing of. On the other side, you know, the, the, the rise of what was once underground metal changing, you know, changing the whole scope of things. I mean, you know, all of a sudden, like you had you had the big four, you know, yeah. you know, then then you had then you had like Napalm, you know, then you, all of a sudden you've got like Napalm Death, you know, a, four, a, a band who appeared on a, a crass bullshit detector record in 1983 all different members you know being being an important band or you know a band like sepultura coming out being as 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 hardcore you know as as any of as as anything we're talking about you know or you know obituary you know who are like a heart you know almost like a hardcore band in their own right um you know so so just just seeing this kind of explosion of of not just our underground, but multiple undergrounds, um, you know, was, was mind blowing in the early nineties. Now with all that, how did you pick? What did you go with personal contacts, people that you had established relationships with, or were there times you were going in dry where you didn't know the person, but you just loved the sound. Like 
what was the approach from you now, not as a guy who could ask them to talk for a publication for a write-up, but like, hey, I'm trying to make money with you and get you on a label. Like, how did you go into these um, these conversations with these bands? I mean, initially the playing field that I sort of, you know, I sort of got the most involved with was that kind of like post-Nirvana, post-Green Day, um, you know, set of bands. So there were a lot of personal connections connections there anyway. Um, I mean, there were definitely there were definitely bands I didn't know or hadn't dealt with in the eighties who were coming up. Uh, be they, you know, meeting meeting with Rancid, you know, the, my first meeting with Rancid, or um, meeting with the Bouncing Souls, you know, or um, you know. Basically, people, you know, how, how you mean, what, like, what was the conversation like? Not just a, it was not just a conversation, but like, you go from being a zine writer, and you have connections, and you know a ton of people. Right. But then, it's one. It's just the same thing as like if if you were to approach somebody who wasn't represented to say like, "Hey, I want to be your booking agent." What was your mindset like when you see something good, but you may not know the person? Did you go in dry, or did you see if you had a connection, or were you more like? kind of like a predator like up oh, i like that band i think there's something that i'm going to walk up confidently like in the early stages as you're establishing yourself as an AR, i'm wondering how your technique to kind of start engaging oh, okay. with the band was okay i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't call my i wouldn't call my approach predatory um but i would i would say you know i certainly had no problem walking up to somebody after somebody somebody you know who was struggling to catch their breath um you know, mopping, mopping up this, mopping up their sweat going, Hey, that show was awesome. Hi, I'm, I'm Mike. And I, you know, when you have a second and you get dried off, I'd like to talk to you. Um, Fuck yeah. but, you know, it was the same, it was the same conversation you would have with anybody in a club. I mean, I, I think by that point I had been, you know, to hundreds of shows had spoken to, you know, hundreds of musicians and had no, no issues you know, walking up to anybody and sparking a conversation. Yeah. I feel like that is like the precursor or like the prerequisite skill from having all the conversations from the fanzine and the publications you would write that it would become easy. But I didn't know because you were, if you were going to keep it in your DIY frame of mind or because you're working with a major, if they wanted you to have a more uh, professional presentation, you know, What's a professional presentation? Uh, the the now it's a now it's a weird ass email and hey, would you like to get on a Zoom call? But previously, I think the weirdest ones I've gotten was like, hey, I represent so and so, and they give you a business card, and I'm like, all right, cool, I got some shit to load out. I'll talk to you later, and I walk away. So I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, and there have been there have been those people too, yeah. and, and at that point, you just you know you you hit them up again and go, Hey, you know, I'm this dude and you were busy at the time, but I'd love to talk to you. And in a lot of cases, look, you know, having, you know, having already had a career by the time I got involved with A&R, um, you kind of know the secret, you know, there's kind of a few secret handshakes you learn and, you know, punk is, you know, obviously, obviously all of us who came out of that, you know, that's one secret handshake. Um, and there's just, you know, you, you, you learn, the social skill of just how to hang. And I'm a nerdy motherfucker. 
No, you're chill. You're chill. And I, 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 like, I think that the thing that impresses me most is that it was like a no factor thing. Now you, Atlantic was New York based, right? So you had to move down to New York or did you stay in Boston and travel? Like, did you get to work remote? No, I had moved to New York. Yeah. So you moved to New York so that you were like deep in the New York scene. So it was actually like, all right, so you're in the clubs. Now, was there other people? Because the way I the way I envision it, based upon conversations I've had, it seemed like there was quite a few people looking to kind of snag things up. Were you mm-hmm. in that system of like hearing that people were getting signed and people were getting offered deals, or, or were you just focused on what you thought would work and you weren't concerned with what was going on around you? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that there was a brotherhood. Of, you know, this sort of like secret society or brotherhood of the NR people. Um, but we all knew each other, yeah. you know, and some, some of us were even pals. Um, but you know, we would definitely, every, everybody was, you know, you, you would hear of things called bidding wars and there were definitely bands that got besieged by, you know, multiple, multiple major labels. You know, there's the famous, you know, the famous story of, um, I think Rancid being sent nudes from, from Madonna, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, like, like there's, there's, you know, there, there's all there was the, the industry was definitely more populated, heavier, and more competitive at that time. But we also all knew each other, you know. And 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 you know, there's many many people who were involved back then. I still know now, and are still friends of mine. And you know, there's a lot of great music people that came out of that period. I mean, again, Michael Alago is probably one of the most celebrated and most deserving of that of that time. And you know. He was aggressive and accomplished and, you know, you know, but you also had people, you, you also had people like Michael Goldstone, um, who, you know, I was always, you know, who I would sometimes, you know, definitely run into competition with. Um, I guess I was told that he was interested in signing Jawbox early on as well, but I don't know. He kind of did okay with Rage Against the Machine, Pearl Jam, um, he did. He did sign. Shine. Sign. Shudder to think. Uh, he did sign. Handsome. You know. Again, like another great example of somebody who was willing. You know, who was willing to look other places to find find a commercial success. I wonder if there is a metric of commercial success then that wouldn't be valid now like by the 93 standard versus like say the today's standard in the job that you do now. I mean, I think, I think the bottom, the bottom line is, you know, you're, you're still, you're still moving music. Um, you're still either, whether it's, you know, whether, whether it's selling a pile of CDs back then or, you know, selling vinyl and encouraging, you know, streams today um, or, you know, the, or, or you know, encouraging down, you know, downloads today, which is less and less the case. Um, I, I think, the, I think the, the, I mean, obviously, the, you know, the, the business, the business has shrunk, it has changed, but the bottom line is, you're still, um, you're, you're, you're still moving art, you're still moving music, and that's the way I still approach, approach it. Now, how long were you doing? the A&R for Atlantic. And then when did you shift over? Five years, um, 93 to 97 Atlantic. And 
in September of 97, I started at Roadrunner Records. That's like such a good and time for them too. <laughs> it was it was an amazing time. God, it was an amazing time for them because that was, you know, you, you had, by that point, you know, you had Sepultura, Fear Factory, Typo, Machine Head. Um, you, you had this, this like, to say, to say nothing of like the, you know, obituaries, um, obituaries, suffocations. Um, I said several times. Yes. Right. Um, you know, all, all the bands that preceded that, um, along the way. And you had, you had a highly organized, um, like highly organized, uh, aggressive company with a worldwide setup that has ha- had never been approximated or approached, you know, by any by any company. And and to me, you know, that like like ro- ro- like Roadrunner, and that, this is a whole other you know long conversation. But I mean, there's there's never been a label like it, and I don't think there can ever be a label like it again. When you say set up like that, was that because they kind of combined? The the office is like what? What do you mean when you say that the way the, the way it was set up? What you're talking about? I mean the the reason for that was Case Wessel is the owner and founder of uh, Roadrunner. You know had had a strategy for that label um, where bands could be developed internationally. Um, you know he because at the time, you know he did have merchandise rights and he had some publishing rights. Um, there were various streams of streams of income um, by which he could actually invest as well. Um, you know, there, the, 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 and, and his 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 eye was always on the prize. You know, like be it because uh, you know, again, he wasn't coming from a fan perspective; he was coming from a business a business perspective, serving fans. When I when I think of what you said about suffocation and sepultura specifically, we have to kind of look at this from a weird way of suffocation probably had one of the hardest early breakdowns I think was copied by so many (laughs) early to mid nineties hardcore bands. And, um, in that Pierce from within that like, and then if, if you were a mid nineties hardcore person who played guitar and you didn't rip off something from chaos AD, like it's, it's impossible to not see the impact of those bands in the later mm-hmm. 1990s and late late nineties hardcore and the early 2000s, even to now like the metallic presence of some of those bands really completely embedded themselves in what would be hardcore. And, and I, and I have to wonder as a music journalist who started, at the very earliest stages, how you felt seeing the the growth in hardcore go from being what we were talking about with Black Flag for the fast the fast side to the slow side, and now the incorporation of these giant chug riffs that you would hear in these metal records. Well, I th- I think if you know and this is this again you know this this is a whole sort of uh, you know other conversation, but I think I think the difference. You know, between 
the, the, the hardcore we knew then and the hardcore we know now is the, is the absence of punk, you know, is the absence of, of, you know, the, the bands, the bands that, you know, we were getting turned on to way back when, be it Black Flag, Adolescence, Weirdos, um, you know, even, even, you know, the Bad Brains and Minor Threat, um, they were still coming from, there was still, you know, punk in there. There was still serious songwriting in there. There was still rock and roll in there. There was still blues in there. Hmm. And I think by the time you, you know, by the, as, as metal became more extreme, you know, a lot of the blues got filtered, a lot of the blues got filtered out, you know, and I think, I think, you know, why, why do we love the first four Metallica records so much is because they're, they're, they're such their own thing. You know what I mean? They're so like important, you know, there's, they're, 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 they're not rock and you know they're not rock and roll. They're they're another you know they're another branch off the tree. Um. So I think you know I think the difference yeah the difference between then and now was just that like lack of you know lack of punk lack of lack of rock and roll. Um. So I mean if I'm to look at look at that as you know from for, through through journalist through journalist eyes. Um, so when I look at the 1990s and, and compartmentalize it to different things, when you're getting to Roadrunner, I feel like metal in that form has completely overshadowed the old idea of metal. And yet mm-hmm. at the same time, I mean, I, I, I saw Pantera for the first time open on that hard Skid Row record <laughs> tour. Oh, yeah. But like, yeah. even at that stage, Pantera have been giantly popular, but they weren't doing as well as some of the bands who were doing Roadrunner because they started slipping. But the original metal stuff, the hair stuff, then into the 90s, you'd see the grunge kind of like wipe the hair metal out of the music spectrum. Mm-hmm. So it was the Roadrunner metal that really controlled, I wouldn't say controlled, but dominated so much of the metal presence until the European stuff started coming over. I, I think I think that you know, largely because of great A&R and I will, you know, here's looking at you, Monty Connor. Um, a lot. And, and, be, and also because of, you know, the, the marketing apparatus uh, that was at Roadrunner at the time you had, you had, and, and there was also less, look, there were less bands. There were less bands. Um, everything, you know, a lot of bands at the time were, you know, Going straight into into new new energy and new t- new territory, and writing new musical languages, um, you know you 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 had all of, you had all of that, plus you had person you know you had personalities be it you know, and and, and Roadrunner was very good at amplifying that, um, be it you know Dino and Fear Factory, um, Max. Flynn, Pete Steele, um, you know the the, the Roadrunner machine was was great at sort of emphasize. You know, uh, it was it was in a lot of ways a star making machine. 
What do you think that was a combination of all those things? Was that planned out? And do you think any band could have fit into that format? Or do you think it was like a perfect timing of the right bands with the right company and the right people to direct that? See, here's, here's the great thing like, like both you and I share is that we came up when giants walked the earth. And, you know, if, if, if you, it's, it's often said like, oh, they don't make them like that no more. And, you know, even if, even if you go back through hardcore and you've got, you know, you've got these like oversized personalities. I mean, look, look at, look at like some of the great New York, you know, New York hardcore characters. Um, there's, a, there's so many yeah. of them, whether it's the, the original ones, like the Stigmas, the Vinnies, even you can yeah. even touch on Harley as a total character. Yeah, I get it. They're Marvel comic superheroes. Absolutely. Okay. Like, like they're, they're, they're these, they're, they're these like outsized characters and, you know, and, and to a certain extent, like you have that metal, you know, be it with, be it with, you know, Hatfield or, you know, be it, be it with, you know, Carrie and Tom or Mustaine um, or the Anthrax, you know, these are like big, big, big personalities. And, you know, um, so I, 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 th I think that that had a lot to do with it. That had a lot to do with it too. And also it doesn't, it doesn't hurt that, you know, we were there was there was still a star making machine around um music and you know particularly around metal um there were you know all those magazines i, I wrote for way back when that you know like created visions and created identities and you know had pinup pictures of some of these characters um so you know so we had st we, we we had a star making system um that that you know, even reached into the, even reached into the underground and really emphasize some of these characters. I really think also metal needed like a, like a change of guard, so to speak, because you're mm -hmm. talking about Slayer at that time kind of shifted from being the clash of the Titans, one of the biggest bands. So they, they changed the ball, Paul Bostaff and they got, they were playing in mm -hmm. small rooms in Philadelphia but I, I do feel like metal was shifting in different directions the same way hardcore was at that time. And it was the bands like Sepultura and the Fear Factories mm -hmm. and the Typo Negatives who were expanding the sound sonically and the visually and just conceptually what metal was all considered, you know? And I, and I find that hardcore and metal grew hand in hand at the end of the 90s in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's interesting, you know, a couple thoughts. Um I mean, and by virtue of that, that it makes sense that Pantera for that moment was going to become the biggest band in the world because they did all of that. And they were in, in the same breath, they were Van Halen. You know, they had that charismatic, like every member of that band was charismatic. They had the great front man, guitar player, you know, guitar player relationship. Um, and, and they were the best player, you know, they were the best players on the block, like, you know, like those those guys could play rings around everybody else, um, so it made sense that they would become like you know, they would become like that next you know that next giant. I don't think we've had a band like that, you know, since that since that point. Um, with hardcore, you know, you gotta give a lot of you gotta give a lot of credit to Victory Records because I think you know come come the nineties, that was a similarly you know. Obviously, you know, Tony was extremely driven. Um, 
and you know a great a and r guy and also was able to hand pick bands that had a lot of personality earth crisis strife snapcase um became you know became leaders you know in part one because you know musically that they were special um but also there were real you know there were big personalities there there was you know there was carl there was rick you know there was daryl like and 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 they were well marketed and and they were they were you didn't have to go you know you didn't have to know what you know indie record store to go to in your town you could find those records at the mall um so you know i think i think victory records actually you know plays in a very 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 important role in the development of hardcore and re, you know sort of rebuilding and redefining hardcore that era no i i think that one of the things that kind of comes alongside the rise of roadrunner was that victory created a model and i know there's probably there's a good argument to say that it was the same time as some of the distributors kind of created magazines and like everything as a DIY machine started having more organization, but I think it was Tony Brummel and crew that kind of created the marketing and kind of packaged everything where you knew what you were getting. And you saw this in the eighties with Rev. You saw this in eighties with smorgasbord and SST where you could buy a record from a label because of the branding and Epitaph would be the same way. But in the '90s, Victory did a really good job. Besides, like a hyper hi-fi and the road burners, and some of the stuff that would come after they get past like the first hundred records, where for the most part their crowd bought what was sold. And I feel that Roadrunner, when you're talking about the time that you're working, was the same way. There was very few eh, moments for Roadrunner in that late '97 and forward sounds from you guys. I think that's important as a label if you're trying to have a, a strong brand and create an entire group of humans that know that, okay, if this has this name on it, it's going to be fucking good. But something that we should talk about is from a marketing point of view. Do you remember those weird rock videos and heavy metal v- VHSs that were like mm-hmm. promo? Like I also think that was key in the marketing that would grow some of the bands that you would work that you talked about because Everything that we said, I mean, even some of the earlier biohazard stuff that would get on when they did that major record label release, those those rock monthly videos or the hard the hard rock video, like like those things, those things on top of something earlier, which was the Columbia House CDs, and the the way that all the punk rock and hardcore people would steal the CDs, get the ten free CDs, but not pay for the club. I think that was important in getting people immersed in these catalogs because you get like five or CDs for free when you first order, you know? Well, plus you also, you know, the, a, there was, there was look more, more CDs, more records being sold. So there was more, there was definitely more money floating around to market these things. Um, and you also had really strong marketing, you know, companies like concrete, you know, who would, who would get those, you know, who would get those real, you know, those, those video reels out to st- Stores, remember stores, um, you know, who would who would be able to sort of really aggressively market, and that was also the beginning of street teams. Um, hmm. No, I mean that's another huge part of it because 
I can remember friends who were involved because South Street in Philadelphia had a handful of really good record stores all in walking distance. So mm-hmm. by the by the by the mid nineties, I didn't even have to really chase down people outside of shows because I knew oh if I didn't bring flyers to the, outside of the show, I could sit on South Street any day and just hand out. And I would and a lot of my friends were doing the marketing via this the the street team where they would put the flyer in, they would do the thing, and that that DIY street immersion while they're still a big company definitely played hand in hand. Did you guys take any hints from that? Or were you guys at such a bigger level, but besides like handing out stickers and being a part of some of the tour promotion that you guys weren't thinking at the street level with Roadrunner because of how big in the units that you guys were moving? No, I mean, I mean, that was the, that was the foundation that was unavoidable. Um, You, you had to go, you know, make sure that those flyers or those, you know, posters were up in the stores um, you had to make sure that, you know, there were kids with cassettes or CDs or whatever, you know, whatever kind of promo that they could listen to in their car on the way back from a gig um, were, you know, poised and ready outside the shows. So, I mean, I mean, it, and, and it was definitely very, e- at that point, it was also very easy to identify, um, you know, who the, who those consumers were. And, you know, how to get to them. When you look at that time, do you feel like that was like a golden error or that was like a growing point and metal would have way more to come as we get into the early 2000s? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a believer that like there's, there's no, Experience has taught me to to negate the notion of salad days, minus the seven inch, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I mean that was that was definitely an important point, an important point in you know the development of you know a fan base, a scene, a consumer base for sure. And that was you know that was one swipe at marketing. As you. As you grow more into this role, were there bands that you normally, at your first position, you wouldn't have taken a shot at that as you're under this thing with Roadrunner that you took like bigger chances with? Or did you keep your role with an A&R to things you knew about, things you thought would go, and you didn't, you didn't reach out beyond that? Well, I mean, I mean, my, my, you know, my music, my musical journey and experience had, you know, day by day, week by week, year by year broadens. Um, anyway, so, you know, was, 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 was I only taking shots at bands that had through lines to where I came from? Uh, not necessarily, you know, not necessarily like, you know, you, I mean, there, there were definitely bands I worked with at Roadrunner, um, you know, early on the Misfits, um, who I, you know, picked up after after they were on Geffen. Uh, or even, you know, the first band I was I worked with at Roadrunner, uh, which was Both Worlds. Hell yeah. Which was, was you know, John Joseph and the Leeway guys, i.e. most of the, at least half of the, you know, the current Chromax lineup or Chromax Jam lineup. Um, so, 
you know, there, there were, there were bands and there were people that tie back that tie into that. Uh, but there were also, you know, there were also just new, new kids on the scene um, or bands that you would, you know, I mean, I mean, basically like, A&R's really, in, in, in my mind, you know, particularly in, in the kind of band-based A&R that I do, um, it's really just about paying attention. You know, it's it's about like knowing the outlets and, you know, seeing, seeing th- you know, being aware of what, what things are getting bigger. Um, you know, for instance, I think the band that cemented my position at Roadrunner for, for many years um, was Il Nino. And that was a band that, you know, I encountered on, well, I actually knew, I knew them as El Nino because Jorge from Marauder was, was the singer. Yeah, they, they briefly had him practice and play, but he was not actually a part when they legitimately like signed with you guys, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, um, he was, he was part of, you know, definitely part of their history as was, you know, as, as, as was um, Derek from Demolition Hammer or, you know, Danny Gomez from Gothic Slam. Um <laughs> You know, but yeah, by the, but what, what, what really kind of captured my, you know, captured me with them was hearing them on WSOU and seeing how often they had, you know, they had been played on SOU, understanding that there were some changes within the band that the bass player, Chris, had moved over to vocals. And, you know, it, it, it sounded like it was all like, like heading in the right direction. And then when I went to the Birch Hill to see what was it, what was, you know, basically their first, their first show is Il Nino. Um, I, you know, saw three or 400 people in a room um, watching a band play maybe seven or eight songs, including a, a cover of Soulfly's Eye for an Eye. And the crowd, you know, the crowd, like just eating it up and the band legitimately being a great band, you know, so that was like a very pure A&R moment. As it turns out, of course, Dave Shavari and I have, you know, had known each other for years um, going into that. And I actually think I, I gave uh, Gothic Slam his, you know, Gothic Slam um, kind of a negative re- review many years before. <laughs> and then you ran into him. To which he will never let me forget. That. <laughs> um, I have to ask you if you think that over your tenure from Zine to publicist or not publicist but um as a journalist and then in your roles at A&R through two decades and we're only talking about two the first two decades so far yeah, only the first yeah, only the first few decades because your fucking career is so fucking Damn. expansive if I'm, I'm, I'm good looking dude, I, dude it's just fucking awesome but what I was getting at is uh where do you where do you see where do you see your abilities to see styles as they start merging and growing and like, where do you get your eye for talent? Like, is there, is it just, a, is it something so innate that you can't describe or is there any kind of metric or way to explain when you're looking at a band, mm-hmm. what you're looking for? And if you, if they have it and where did you like uh, create this idea for like the stuff that you're looking for? Um, There's, there's no, there's no one, one metric. There's no, um, one method uh there's no one one ideology it's a bunch of things i mean obviously you see a great you see a great band or you hear a great song um given you know given whatever whatever the nature of that you know whatever the genre it is 
and that's undeniable. Um, I also have this other this other thing where if I don't understand something off the bat, or if there's music that makes me go like I don't get it, it intrigue it intrigues me to go back and go. Is this is is this something I don't get because it's somebody speaking in a voice I haven't heard yet? Is this somebody's new punk? Is this somebody's you know some somebody's new dialogue? Um, and I find I find things like that fascinating. You know, my 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 belief is, I think my my you know, the the greatest and worst thing in the world would be to be made obsolescent. Um, and the thing the thing I think as as I think any A and R person really struggles against is that notion is that notion of obsolescence and aging out and you know obviously while you don't want to become a cartoon of yourself and be with the kids you know i i want to i i want to understand this i want to understand like you know how how art how art influences culture um and i think one, one can keep do, you know i think one can keep doing that as time goes on i mean you know, I think one of the great, you know, one of the great role models for me, uh, aside from, you know, other great record men, including Brecker Ritz and Alago and um, Michael Goldstone, you know, is John, is John Peel, the BBC um, DJ. Yeah, Peel Sessions. Who, yeah, who was, you know, really responsible for exposing and promoting like generations, you know, generations of different, different kinds of bands. So my challenge is, you know, like, come on, motherfuckers, make, you know, make me obsolescent. I dare you. Uh, Cause I'm, ha I'm still having fun doing this. Man, you're still succeeding now. Okay. Yeah. I'll take that. Gra you know, Grammys and all. Yeah. Grammys and all. <laughs> it's fucking great. <laughs> It's like well, it's it's important, and and I think that this goes back to something that I I've been meaning to get you to, to to speak on because of your, you know, um, your your entire time in this music and being there at the roots of it. Where do you think the '80s and '90s hardcore failed to be commercially successful? while still managing to influence so much fucking culture down the line. Like what went wrong were some of these bands and, and, and that's not the ones who signed a rock or hotel and didn't have the good deal. But like, what do you think that the hardcore punk world did that changed the trajectory to not be as equally commercially successful as it was culturally important? Because as you've already been talking about, so many hardcore people have gone on with other projects to be commercially successful. And so many hardcore people have gone on to influence art and culture and music and skating and every aspect of American culture and world culture. Where do you think where do you think it went wrong? It didn't go wrong. Okay. But by, by, by virtue of everything you're saying, we won. You know? Because if you if you look at it, this was not meant, you know, this was not meant to be in everybody's bread box. Um, this was not meant, you know, this was this was hardcore was a set was, was a cultural dis, you know disruption. 
it was meant to disrupt. It was meant to push things to, you know, whatever that next, that next generation, that next idea, that next ideal. Um, it was meant to be a new language. So the way I look at it is in a world where the drummer of Scream is one of the biggest rock stars in the world. Yeah, potentially ever. <laughs> so big. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the guy who's like, you know, played on fucking blast records, um, you know, where um, Rollins is a social, social commentator, um, you know, where the Chili Peppers, you know, who, whose bass player once played in Fear, um, where Bad Religion is still an important band featuring a guitar player who, you know, played in Minor Threat, Dag Nasty, The Meat Men, um, and, you know, an early, a very, very, very quick, quickly, quickly lived version of Sam Hain, where the Misfits are headlining arenas. Man, we won. You know, we won. And 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 that and 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 the other the other thing where I think we won is the amount of people I meet and talk to every day who are, you know, maybe came a year, you know, a year, two, three, a decade, two decades after me who are having an impact, um, who are having an impact on things, um, who are, you know, changing the business, changing the culture, becoming successful, um, becoming, you know, writing, writing, you know, new paradigms for success. Um, and again, it's, it's everybody, you know, from, you know, John Anastas to Shepard Ferry, um, to Vitalo to, you know, like all, like, like our, some of our homies and, you know, Chris Wren. Um, I mean, look at, look at the personality, the, the people we're dealing with who are, you know, yourself, like who, who have, have, have come from, you know, who've come from like that, you know, extremely personal experience with music and gone gone on changed the world and changed the audience and changed the business um i think we're doing okay i really love that perspective to be honest something that i have to ask you before I, we've got almost three hours and i know you got uh things to do so we'll have to bring you on for a part two but i have to okay. i have to wonder if your punk rock diy true to the roots thing ever stopped you or you know kept you from doing something that was totally like oh i bet if i sign this they'll make a lot of money or were you able to conceptualize that if you sign a band and they and they win and it's all good that the money thing was an issue because i know some people from punk rock the money thing's hard was that ever an issue for you like working towards a goal that was financially positive like how did that play into the whole thing as you go from punk rock guy to professional A&R guy? I mean, I'll sum it up like this. Tim Summer, Noise the Show. Yeah. A prime mover in in the early American hardcore landscape signed Hootie and the Blowfish. 
it doesn't it doesn't you know negate his his influence or or what you know what he did at college radio rick rubin um you know who came from like super diy beginnings you know you know johnny you know johnny cash the chili peppers um you know all of that um you know the aforementioned dave grohl who you know one one of the biggest mainstream artists of our day i that level of success that level of success doesn't negate what they've done in the past my my feeling is you know the, the the only the only thing for me is is the is the music good you know is the art good um i mean there's plenty of people you know plenty of people i've worked with who you know don't know the secret handshake and and that's that's okay because they're coming from a different perspective you know different perspective that i can learn something from um so i i feel like you can absolutely by the way, my my there, there was a you know great example. There was a uh, issue of Maximum Rock and Roll, I think ninety four ninety five, that had like maximum you know it was called Maximum Greed and Ego instead of Maximum Rock and Roll. That was the title of the magazine, and of course like you know there's Green Day and Bad Religion and The Offspring and Epitaph and this person and that and my name's in there. Wow, and that's a that's a pretty good company company to be to be associated with. Uh, I'm also mentioning, you know, the Steve Albini, the problem with music article yeah, comes up every few years. And, and I think it's a great article. I think that Steve, like, I think Albini is like right on in terms of his numbers and what he's got to say in that piece. Um, but when he starts putting me in the company of people like, you know, Al Smith, um, you know, CBGB Soundman, um, Terry Tolkien, who was involved with the Buckle Surfers, I believe played in the Buckle Surfers. Uh, Lyle Preslar, who, you know, ran Caroline, who played in, you know, not just the Meat Men, but a little band called Minor Threat. And then he mentioned me alongside him. I'm pretty Yeah, that's, okay. a, that's a good company. I can roll those guys. Well, that's that's one of the, the, the problems with the ideology of success it, it staples the growth and i find that when you talk about when when people have talked about selling out they're really talking about controlling who listens or where the music goes to in some regard but i feel like the only way for this whole entire music to continue into its fourth decade is because of the people that you just mentioned and obviously i mean you can start at the very beginning like if, if we wanted to keep it completely grassroots, no one should ever release a record ever, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. no one should have ever sold a t-shirt. No one should have ever made a tape. You know, um, I love that you bring up the noise, the show. Um, it was brought up in other episodes and it's insanely important to mention that sometimes radio just gets overlooked and it's importance. And there's still people from New York hardcore that talk about how they listen to noise, the show for the first time. So it's cool to see mm -hmm. that he didn't stop there and he would go on to influence more music. For me, when I look at people like you who have started 
such a simple thing as making a zine, which when we say simple, you know, the nineties kids will walk up with a card and Kingo's would print it for free. I'm pretty damn sure how you printed the first couple XXXs were much harder than that. And the the tenure and the time and the connections that you would make and your time writing with Rasher, all this stuff would lead into not only a career where you impact music, which would then impact art and the rest of the world, but you're talking like someone who still loves his job the way a 20 year old kid would love his first job. And I, and that's, that's something I'm going to take with me from this conversation more than anything that like you absolutely fucking love what you do. And I think that's why you are still succeeding. Would you say that's true? I mean, what makes a man start fires, you know, um, I, I just love this. You know, I still love that, that discovery. I still, you know, am passionate about this, this music, this culture, um, you know, see, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited that we can get to see live music again, you know, um, having, having that taken away for, you know, the past year, year and a half, you know, has kind of sucked. But at the same time, I've listened to a lot of music in that time. I bought a lot of records. Um, I've, I've filled, I, I've filled that void. Um, and I think this, you know, this is, this is still something be it related to, you know, roots in, you know, a DIY zeitgeist or just, you know, being involved with music this whole time. It's, it's still a massive turnout for me. Um, and I've, I've been lucky and been very, been lucky and been blessed to have a, you know, have a career doing this. I mean, hell, you know, aside from, you know, working on, you know, aside from, you know, I don't even want to say the job because it doesn't even feel like a job half the time. Um, but aside from, you know, what I do um, as vice president of A&R at Century Media, you know, I'll also do projects like, you know, I just did a um, oral history of uh, se of seven seconds from 1979 to 1983, 84 for an upcoming reissue of the crew that the guys, that the Trust Records guys, Joe Nelson, first singer of Ignite, Matt Pincus, bass player, you know, bass player and judge. Hell yeah. Um, you know, two great minds who are, I'm, I'm, I'm honored are my friends. Um, you know, I get to do it like a, like a cool little project like that with them. And it just, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's the, it's what keeps, you know, it's what keeps us motivated. You know, all of, all of it just, I, I, I still I still feel as passionate about it as ever. You can hear it. You can hear it in everything that we talked about. Before I let you off the hook, I got to ask you, based upon only the stuff that we talked about in this time frame, so nothing past the 90s Roadrunner, because we're bringing you back. We got to get into the 2000s and into now because there's just so much to your career that continues to grow. What was your biggest accomplishment up until this point? And then what was your biggest disappointment or failure as so far in your career at this point? Um, the biggest failure is not learning. The big, the biggest failure is, 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 is not, not fully. And I can think of many, many different instances 
personally and professionally um, where, you know, you, I, I, you know, where, where you didn't learn from some great lesson that was taught, you know, while you were working on something. Uh, I think that's the biggest disappointment. The biggest success, the biggest success is that we're still talking about this. Uh, in terms, in terms of events along the way, it's, it's everything from, it's, it's, some of it's fleeting, you know, some of it's an award, some of it's a sales level, um, some of it's, you know, an accolade. Um, the biggest, the biggest success or, you know, I mean, hell, you know, I think, I think obviously one of my biggest, one of the biggest or most gratifying things that, you know, happened was, um, working with Chris Wren on the triple X book. Um, that was, you know, I think Walter, Walter said best to me one day, he goes, man, that was you claiming your space. I said, okay, I'll take, I'll take that. Um, you know, but the biggest, the biggest success is what comes next. You know, the biggest success is finding that young band and their lives changing, um, within a few months to a few years. You know, I think that that's, at, at the at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that that's the mark. That longevity is the mark of success, and that ability to influence, be it you know, an audience or individuals, is what still gets me off. I gotta tell you, Mike, your story is legendary in so many ways because there's so many people that I think today would think that you would have to sit in a college for four years and learn all these things. And yet you did it all in record stores and smelly clubs, listening to small seven inches by bands that may not have been important at the time, but to you were the world and you would grow to be in a job where you would bring these small bands to the rest of the world. And because we got to bring you back, I just want to say, I appreciate what you've done. Um, for those listening, I'm going to put a link up for the XXX fanzine through Bridge Nine, and a way to reach out to Mike again. Oh, 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 oh! Sure, sure. But you mentioned you mentioned college. Yeah, right? I know you went to college because you said you were going you to college. Mike went to college, like my Mike Milo. Mike went to college, but you know who was one of my professors? Who's that? Vic Bondi. <laughs> of course, I I had Vic Bondi right. I, I, have, I have a couple of good, you know, since we're just going there right now. Um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I knew Vic because uh, from Articles of Faith and I had actually done a show with AOF um, in 85, I think. Um, like I was involved with promoting the show. But, you know, and, and I've, I've, Articles of Faith to me is still one of my like favorite bands ever. And their, their record, In This Life, which is the their second record. Um, is is one of those records that like you could call a proto emo classic yeah and i mean i mean emo by like you know the with you know with i'll take my emo with a side of punk rock um you know so yeah i, I had vic i had vic as a, as one of my professors he basically um 
made me, but I was very happy to take his course in uh, turn of the century Viennese history. That was what he was teaching in Boston and uh, in the University of Massachusetts. Um, this way he taught at Boston University. Oh, and he he was teaching that. That's crazy. And that's yeah. was and that was uh that was in the after the first breakup, right? So he like broke up and he became a professor and worked out there. Um, no, that was that was after AOF was well, that was after AOF was done on their main, you know, their main. Yeah, run. yeah, that was like the the main breakup, right? Right. Um, although, you know, did you ever show him the zine when you like when he, when you were in college? You're like, yo, I did the zine. I interviewed him. In yeah, that's zine. what I'm saying. But like, you showed him. Like, you had to have linked up, or was there like the no, I'm your professor, or did you like? Did how did he? How did you? <laughs> all right. He was like, you better. He was like, you better take my course, mother. <laughs> like, that goes back to what you said about okay. that secret handshake thing. Like, there it is. Exactly. I was like, okay, Professor Bondi, let's 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 go. And you know, honestly, the guy is is probably one of the you know one of one of the the most incisive, um, you know, and and just one of the most incisive minds you know to have to have come out and, and passionate minds to have come out of, come out of the American underground. Well, especially like uh, something we talked about on the. Also, speaking of okay, speaking of college, see, this is the other thing. Um, so I had, um, in one of my communications classes, uh, agnostic front guitar player Steve Martin, uh, and 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 I were 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 classmates. Um, I wouldn't say that he didn't, you know. Peruse my homework and you know, <laughs> Cheat <on> you. <laughs> you know, but it's fine. He's you know, he's and he's now what you know, publicist publicist for what you know, Metallica, Foo Fighters, uh, Beastie Boys. He's done okay. Um, that's the funny thing. It's 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 like it's like the mo I think one of the most rewarding parts of this is just. It's it's the you know it's it's just being able to dip in and just go. I you know I, I it's, it's like that Forrest Gump Zelligy you know kind of look at history and personalities and shit. I'm blessed. I mean, just the idea that you're you're in college and Rick Bond from Article Space like oh that's your professor. Uh, we had Darren on and Darren. Uh, and actually, Darren and Norm both were talking about the way that early hardcore pioneers were the progenitors to emo music. And Article Space obviously would release music on J Tree, and so it, like that 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 thing continues to grow from like the base roots of hardcore to all these different branches. And Article Space is definitely one of them bands that you can hear it in. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's 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 a few there's a few bands that sort of like are in the sort of Jurassic version of that. Um, certain and 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 by the way, you know, I'll I'll quote Ian. You know, I mean, wasn't isn't all of this emotional anyway? Isn't anger an emotion? Um, but you know, there's certain records that I think are, are linchpin records on the way to that. The faith subject to change. Um, AOF, yeah, AOF, um, in this life, 
marginal male identity. Um, I mean, shit, Milo goes to college. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, think about that. It's like, it's like, you know, you know, punk rock all of a sudden went from like, you know, I hate Reagan to this girl won't, you know, I want to get this girl to talk to me. Yeah. There was a major shift from the, I'm not a punk into that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, 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 you know, like, like, you know, songs like bike edge or, 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 you know, which obviously shaped it so much of what would come later into the sounds of punk rock, which is like a mainstream. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a thing that comes back time and time again, just how much the very beginning of what was done reappears at a bigger level. And I, and I just appreciate you giving us just your perspective and alliterating and, and showing us some of the stuff we're gonna have to have we're gonna have to get you back on the show, and we're almost at three hours. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you. Do you have any last words for right now? Anything you want us to check out? Any projects we should be on the move for? God, what am I? What am I? What am I working on that I'm enormously excited about? Um. Well, there's a number of records I've worked on and I'm working on presently. I'm very excited about. Um. There is a band from Texas uh, called Frozen Soul. Yeah, I checked them out probably, via Twitter. Yeah, probably. Yeah, totally the best, like, obituary, bolt thrower, like, just incredibly well-written death metal record, you know, this side of probably the new Cannibal Corpse record uh, this year. Um, let me see. What, what else am I working on? Um, a band called Bewitcher. whose record just popped out um who which which is like i would describe them as a cross between venom motorhead um merciful fate judas priest turbo negro um it's basically like all of 86 or 87 in one band and they rip uh i'm i'm currently working i have a um record coming from a band called venom prison yeah who are England. English, yep who are an english band who i think have a lot to say in terms you know aside from being like just completely musically badass um you know they they have a lot to say politically personally um i think they're going to be a very important band as as, as time is evolving and God, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many, there's so many more, you know, I'm, and, and look, I'm, I'm happy and excited about where, where I'm at professionally now. I get to work, look, I get to work on the, the same label where, you know, Napalm Death, Voivod, At the Gates, um, you know, Body Count, who I've been working, you know, who I've been working with now um, on the past two records, on the past two records. And I think, God, it's probably about three or four years now. Um you know, all of these, all of these like great bands call the place where I work home. So that's kind of awesome. I really think that when I saw your, your post for when body count won, it put it all in perspective. I mean, this job that we're talking about, we're going to get way into, I think there's a couple of things I'd like to go back when we just delve really into what A&R means and where you take it when we get back on here on the next time. But really, it's not finding a band. 
and assessing how many units, but you're really developing the band and kind of nurturing the relationships that they have and walking them down a path. Would you say, is that we say that's what it is, right? I mean, I mean, A&R, you know, I, I always just, people say to me, what's A&R? Um, it's really simple. It's find them, sign them, um, oversee or, or do whatever, you know, you can to help a record be delivered successfully. Uh, go be, you know, cheerleader, um, jack of all trades, sometimes master of a couple. Um, do whatever's needed to try to get that record, you know, over the hump. Let me see, you know, but I think, I think at the end of the day, you know, what's the most important thing? The most important thing is like, make, make it all count, you know, make, make sure the music is great. Make sure, you know, make sure that everybody gives their all, gives their best. Um, do your, do your damnedest to get out there in front of people, um, and and the rest the rest is there for you know the kids to have their say. Mike, thank you for being on the show. Everyone listening, we're gonna post in the t- in the show notes how to contact Mike, and you can send him your demo yep. cassettes and your eight tracks, <laughs> and um, your best Xerox zines for him to decide if they're good or not. Mike, we're gonna have you back on. There, there's so much to what you did that we got to have you back. Thank you for your time. Thank you for what you put into hardcore and. I've talked to a lot of people and they always have a take that is so much more darker than yours. I love that you still have this positivity and you put some things in perspective for me that now I'm going to reframe some of my ideas in punk and it's, and it's growth. So I really appreciate this conversation and I look forward to another three hours with you, ma'am. Uh, we got, we probably have another three hours. Coming. Oh, definitely. Um, thanks dude. Thanks for having me. And I can't, you know, I can't wait till I'm in Philly and I get to see you again. No, that's going to happen. Hopefully in September. Awesome. Excellent brother. Okay. Thanks for having me and I'll bug you later. Take care. Well, I would really like some feedback and just hear what you guys think about the use of Reaper and what Squadcast versus the previous one sound like. Like I said, I'm trying to improve the audio, especially with so many great guests coming up. I want the best, no more clip outs and missing data. So hopefully we find the way. Thank you for supporting This Is Hardcore Podcast. We're going to have show notes at tihcpodcast.com. You can support at patreon.com slash